All right, and we are back once again to explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant, joined by my partner in crime, my colleague, Kevin Pendergrass. Kevin, how's life tonight? Oh, it is fantastic, Brother Lee. Yes, the rain is gone, the sun's coming out, and I'm happy. Whenever the sun stays away too long, I start getting down, I start getting a little depressed, but seeing that sunshine makes me happy. The heat's coming. You know, we haven't talked about the weather on this podcast in a while, so I had to bring it up again. Every Uh, now and then, it's good. It's good to talk about the weather. That's something that everyone enjoys and everyone can relate to. It's just a a beautiful thing. Beautiful. Yeah. And in our efforts in this podcast, (laughs) we want to try to be relatable to as many people as possible. (laughs) And our audience tends to be those that come from a similar background as you and I, those that were a part of or are a part of or have been a part of the Churches of Christ. And tonight we're going to once again discuss a topic that we've touched on in previous episodes over the last few weeks that have rolled out. And that is the idea of or the concept of women's roles in church as it relates to public worship, etc. Not too long ago, we had Linda King on, Dr. King. She came on and discussed the egalitarian view, which um, expresses a full participation position of women in worship. We had Brother Wes McAdams on, who did a wonderful job outlining exactly what complementarianism is and is not. And I find myself agreeing with much of what he said. And then we did a follow-up episode to that where we discussed the application of the complementarian view as it relates to women's roles in worship as well. I find myself disagreeing with a lot of what his um, final conclusions are and what a lot of the conclusions are for folks in that camp as well. Um, I still appreciate what he had to say, and I appreciate his reasoning behind what he presented. I just don't find that argumentation, um, and that may not even be the best word. I just don't really find that position as compelling as I once did. And that's what we're going to get into tonight, because in that, you've had people reach out to you and say, well, we've heard what Linda King has said, and we've we've heard what, what Wes has said, but Kevin, what do you think? Like, what are your views on this? Lee, what are your views on this? Where do you guys stand on that spectrum of egalitarian, full participation viewpoint and perspective versus a more complementarian and limited or no participation perspective? Where are you guys? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, and this is something I'm glad we're doing, and hopefully we're going to continue to do episodes like this when it comes to different topics, because we did an episode not too long ago, and I'm not sure when exactly all of these different episodes are going to air since we record them at different times, <laughs> but we, when we talked about why we don't debate our guests more, and we explained that we think it's important to give ample time to different views, even if we don't agree with those views, instead of just constantly asking questions that are are trying to put someone in a corner or just trying to trap someone, we want people to be able to come on and share why they believe what they believe without us breathing down their neck saying, okay, we're about to get you. You know, we're, we're going to ask you all these questions and try to try to refute everything you're saying, uh, because that's not really our purpose. Our purpose is to literally explore faith, and we want people to understand where different positions come from and the, the rationale, the reasoning, the arguments behind it whether we agree with it or not we don't we don't want to misrepresent that and that's why we have people come on our show to give different thoughts and we have been criticized a little bit in times past of not really 
not, not really in our hands. We're, we don't really yeah, express yeah. where we are. Like, what do you believe? What does Lee believe? And, and I get that. And I can understand how that might be frustrating to somebody. In my view, it doesn't really matter that much what I think, though. I mean, if, if you want to know, I'll tell you, but it shouldn't be something someone shouldn't base their faith or their belief system off what I say or what you say or what anyone else says. You know, they need to be willing to hear what someone has to say, the rationale behind it, the reasoning behind it, the hermeneutics behind it, the context behind it, etc., and then formulate their own faith based on those things. But Absolutely. Anyway, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off anyway. Sorry. No, Go no, ahead. no. And I was just summarizing that the past episode that we did on that and one of the things that has kind of come from that is the importance that we feel of giving our own opinion, giving our own belief so that people do know where we stand and being able to not necessarily uh, review what our guests have said in detail, but just kind of to give our thoughts and maybe bring some of that into the conversation because we are going to do a little bit of reviewing, but it's not going to be a point by point or anything of that nature. It's just going to be, here's our thoughts on these different passages. You've heard what Linda has said. You've heard what Wes has said. Now here's what Kevin and Lee think about these. And, and Lee and I don't always agree. So you no. may hear some conflicting ideas or some co conflicting conclusions. And that's why it's so important to be humble, to have humility, to be kind, to be respectful toward one another. And instead of always seeing the other view or those who hold the other view as enemies, to still see them as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we're just constantly trying to have grace and patience with one another and bear one another's burdens just to, to grow with one another. And so that's kind of a long way of saying this is something we're going to start doing more of when we do have guests on we're going to later have an episode where Lee and I, because look, Lee and I talk enough as it is. And <laughs> if, if, yeah. we, if we have a guest on our program and that episode's an hour, if we're going to start giving our views, all of a sudden now the guest, they're not going to have a very long time or you know very much time to really lay the foundation for where they come from. So now this is going to have uh, an opportunity or give us an opportunity now to have an episode without anyone where we can spend the time talking about our views. Well, and I think that's, I think that our listeners, based on the feedback that you've received, based on the criticism that we've received, and, and by criticism, it's constructive. It's a good thing because it gives us a better idea of what you guys are wanting to hear. And Kevin and I love that because we're, we're not just doing this for ourselves, even though we do derive a tremendous amount of value from doing this in our own walk and in our own personal growth. You know, Kevin, that's, you know, something you and I have talked about in, in private off the air before is just how beneficial working this podcast and running this podcast has been for you and for me both. You know, it's helped us really flesh out a lot of these ideas that we may have wrestled with for months or even years in some ways. It's forced us to confront those things and discuss them. And, you know, you guys in the audience, you're all kind of along for the ride as we synthesize <laughs> a lot of these ideas and bring these things together. So thank you all for your patience, but also thank you for your criticism, because that lets Kevin and I know where you are. It lets us know what it is you want to hear and what we can do to make this even better to reach more people, because I mean, it's so humbling to hear from people that this podcast has affected in a positive way, and we want to keep that going. We want to help as many people as we can. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and, and dive right into this. Whenever we consider women's roles, we, we kind of settled on five different points that we're going to discuss, and we'll just kind of take off and hit the ground running, man. 
Yeah, so we'll start with the Genesis chapters one and two, the idea of creation, and, and both Linda and Wes spent a great deal of time laying their foundation going back to Genesis chapter one and two, which I find interesting because they were both utilizing the exact same evidence, the exact same points, or not points, but the exact same verses to, for lack of better words, try to prove their point. And I just find that fascinating, once again, how two honest individuals can go to the Bible Two sincere, studious people can go to the Bible and not just go to the Bible, but even go to the same chapter, the same book, chapter, and verse and say, this is why I believe what I believe and come away believing completely different things. And that just really speaks to the nature of how the Bible behaves. <laughs> yeah, And, and that's, that's why we will always want to re, uh, remain humble when we study. And even this topic right here, Lee, you were talking about how we have received that criticism. People really want to know where we stand. And you and I have always tried to be vulnerable with one another, with the audience. And we truly are just thinking out loud. We're studying out loud. We're transforming right here with you. We're growing. We're changing. We're not the ones who are going to say we have all the answers. We're just simply wanting to learn more. We're trying to go grow closer to Jesus and God, uh, learn more about how the Bible operates and functions. And so this is one of those topics where I was already leaning more toward the egalitarian perspective. If, if you could say percentage-wise, I'd probably say about 70%. After hearing both Wes and Linda talk, and after having private conversations with them, having email exchanges, having phone conversations, and also just continuing to do my own research, I would say I'm about 90 95% egalitarian at this point, if not going ahead and saying I'm full egalitarian for all practical purposes. And I just want to explain my thought process through that and why I used to believe what I believed and why I now changed. And some of this I'll mention Linda, some of this I'll mention Wes, but we really aren't here to pick on them. We're not here to elevate one over the other or anything of that nature. Uh, but at times we will allude to some of their arguments where we believe that there were some weaknesses and strengths. And so well, with this, oh, well, go with, ahead. with that, I, I want to just interject just real fast, you know, by describing what you just said, and I really want to throw this in because there's probably not going to be another opportunity for it. But whenever you described how you're changing along with, with everybody else, like this is an ongoing evolution of our faith and, and how you and I are both experiencing paradigm shifts. Whenever I recorded the solo episode last year, at that point, I was still fully within the complementarian limited participation camp as far as women's roles goes. And at the end of the year, whenever we did our end of the year review at that point, I had become, I guess, kind of a 50 to 60 percent egalitarian just simply because just because of study just throughout the year and reading after different authors and reading after different yeah, different contexts related to scripture and the context in which some of these passages we're going to discuss tonight are embedded. And as things have progressed, we kind of had a chuckle about this before we went live. But um, now I would say I'm a soft complementarian as it relates to a, a general sense of, of women and, and men being created and better suited to certain roles. I think that's a general thing. That's a general truth. You know, the example I use is that Kids tend to run to mom whenever they hurt themselves before they run to dad because moms tend to be more nurturing, etc. I believe that men and women do complement each other in that role and that we do have complementarian, a complementarian nature about us. But as it relates to women's roles in worship, I am 100% egalitarian at this point. 
in a functional sense. In general day-to-day life, I don't, there's too much strength to the complementarian position and we'll, we'll flesh this out as we go through in order for me to completely abandon it. But as it relates to the specific idea of a woman's role and function and her ability to participate in the spreading of the gospel and preaching and teaching and serving as a shepherd or, or whatever else, I believe that that is available to any Christian, regardless of their gender, just based on what I have studied and what I've concluded. So with that in mind, I'll go ahead and hand the ball back to you, brother. Yep, and we always reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> and to change our minds in <laughs> yeah, the future yeah. if we have to. And, and thank goodness my salvation is not dependent upon me getting everything right. Even though, as our audience sees, we're really trying. We're wanting to be right. But at the end of the day, my salvation is is placed in the hands of Jesus Christ. And Amen. Thank, thank God literally for that. And that just gives us more space to be able to have honest intellectual discourse where we're not constantly trying just to defend our belief, but we're really trying to to know more, to understand more. And we're all come, we all come to the table with preconceived ideas and biases. We know that, but we're trying to do our best to work around those and to be as intellectually honest as we can. And that also doesn't mean that people who disagree with us are intellectually dishonest. It just means that we're at different places in our study. And uh, that's just a, a matter of fact. We don't need to be looking at individuals who disagree and go, oh, well, Kevin says he's intellectually honest. So those who disagree with him must be intellectually dishonest. That's not at all what we mean, because all of the people we have on our show, we believe are honest. We believe that they're sincere. We believe that they're Christians. We, uh, at least those who claim to be Christians, we in the future may have individuals who don't even claim to be Christians, but those who are uh, claiming to be Christians, those who we have on our show, we know based upon their works and based upon their fruit, what kind of people they are. And that's why we have them on our show. So with all of that 15 minute qualifier and introduction being said, let's go ahead and jump right into this with looking at Genesis one and two and creation. So the issue is not about if males and females are biologically different. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that, whether you're a complementarian or egalitarian. Clearly, there are biological differences in males and females. And Lee, you just briefly touched on that a moment ago, that there are clear differences uh, when it comes to the, the biology of a male and female. So the issue, though, is not that. It's whether or not females were actually created to be in subordination in any sense to males or wives to husbands. And I believe the answer is no. So I believe that God created male and female equally. And the reason I believe that is because there's nothing in the Genesis account of creation where we see that God created females to be in subordination to males in any way. Now, I want to be careful here when I say equally, because Wes or any other complementarian is not going to say that females are not equal to males. So I don't mean to say that um, that, that I believe in an equality that complementarians do not believe. The difference is when I say equal, I'm talking about equal not only in equality and worth and value and things of that nature, but even when it comes to, to role as well as far as subordination is concerned. So I don't think that God said, okay, I'm going to create the male to have more responsibility than the female or the male to have more power or more authority than the female. I don't believe that we ever see that in the creation story, whether we take that as literal or parabolic. In fact, the creation story, I believe, implies that both male and female were equal 
insubordination. Words translated as help meet, the Hebrew word there, uh, means not just equal, but it carries this idea of someone coming alongside and helping. It's predominantly used to describe God. And both Linda and Wes brought up the fact that sometimes it can be used to uh, describe an army, someone calling on an army to help. But even then, that usage is not in subordination. I don't really see that word ever used in how we would describe male-female subordination uh, with those who do believe that. So I, I think from the very beginning in creation, we see that there is no kind of male-female, male, you know, ruling over female or anything like that. We don't even see that until Genesis 3.16 in the story where sin entered the world. And at that point, it's not even prescriptive of what females must do. It's more descriptive of this is how things are going to happen now in this sinful world. Well, and even then, whenever you look at Genesis, and I've spent a lot of time in Genesis, and I'm still spending a lot of time in Genesis. I mean, for whatever reason, taking a more figurative approach to Genesis and a more metaphorical approach to Genesis and viewing it through that lens, it's just opened up so many more theological layers. And it's it just that book has so much more potency and so much more power now. At least to me, it does. It's just it's yeah. it's become even more fascinating for me. And whenever you look at this idea of of male and female, they're image bearers. And Andrew Luck, even in his book on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, in the very first chapter, he talks about this idea of man and woman being God's image bearers, but they're incomplete one without the other. So in a sense, there's almost a complementarian ring to that. But you can't have a full representation of humanity without the woman. You can't have a full representation of humanity without the man. I mean, in order to fully image God, you have to have both parties present. Both are equal, like you said, in value, but also in their roles in the original creation. And that word "ezer," whenever you mention that that Hebrew word that's used to describe who the woman is and the function that she would have whenever God created her, she's a helpmate. She's a helper. She's suitable. She's comparable to the man. And like you said, and like Linda said, and even Wes said, this describes God in Deuteronomy 33. We see it in Psalm 33 and 20. We see it Psalm uh, 70 and verse 5, Psalm 115 and verse 9. And there are a variety of other verses in which this word is used to describe someone who's not a subordinate, but someone who is a helper to you. And this is a word in, in which God himself is described. And I think Linda put it extremely well in, in our interview with her. You're never going to see God subordinate to mankind. That's not the case. I mean, to make the argument that this implies some some sort of subordination, it indicates that God would be subordinate to mankind, and that's just not the case. And like you said, you don't see this subordination manifest itself until sin enters into the world. As a result of sin and as a result of the woman's sin, then her pain is multiplied in childbirth. Her desire will be for her husband, and he will rule over her the result of sin, it's a consequence. It's not a baked in feature of what man and woman will be in their relation to one another. This is a consequence of sin entering the world. This establishes a hierarchy. And we'll talk more about that when we get into our conversation about first Corinthians 11, but there's nothing there at all that indicates any sort of subordination of the woman to man. It's just, it isn't there. The only way it's there is if you read that into the text. 
There's no doubt, no doubt about it. And I know there are passages in the New Testament that are oftentimes used, that I used to use, to try to go back and interject that into the creation account. And we'll deal with those later. But as far as we're concerned right now, when you just study Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, there's no way you're coming out of just studying those three chapters saying, oh, God created the female to be in subordination to the male. You, you just don't see that. And at least I don't. I don't come away with that. I mean, there, there's people who would disagree with me on that, but I, I don't. The more that I study that and just take it in context, I don't. I don't see that. So, are you ready to move on to the next uh, next point, or is there anything? Well, I'd else? like to ask you a question about that, just because it's something that that's kind of burning on me. Um, with that being the case, though, and with this being that natural consequence of the fall, like, what do we do with that idea of because you see that in Genesis three as that as that consequence of the fall, and what do we make of that? I mean, it, it seems like that if this is a consequence of the fall. We see that type of behavior manifest itself in a patriarchal culture, and I can see how it could go both ways. I can see how some would say, well, because of this fallen world, well, now we have to recognize the subordination of woman to man. But I can also see on the other side, people saying, well, as a result of the fall, and if we're made new in Christ, and if Christ is that that second and final Adam, which is something we'll talk about later, probably, if that's the case, well, then, I mean, who knows? Who knows where we're going to go with this conversation? But if that's the case, well, you know, what do we do with that idea? Because I, I know of people and I've had conversations with people that have said, well, because of the fall, that's just the natural consequence. That's just how things are now. So, like, how would you reply to that? I think it's a fair question. I think it's a good question, too. And I believe Linda did a really good job at, first of all, pointing out the inconsistencies of those who fall back on Genesis 3.16 to say this is the way things should be. Because Linda made the point, well, just because this is the way things were, this is the way things are because of sin, doesn't mean it's the way they should be. And within Genesis 3, we see those quote-unquote curses that are given. And we talked about how man has to work by the sweat of their brow and how woman is going to, it's going to be painful for her to have a child. Well, she said, how many men actually work now by the sweat of their brow? And most people have a desk job these days. And how many women would refuse medication? And by the way, there are some out there. So there would, there would be some who would say, well, I believe that it's wrong to take medication to alleviate pain during childbirth. But the majority of Christians, probably specifically the ones listening to this, would, would say, no, we don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, why not? If, if we're trying to live by the fallen standard of Genesis 3.16, then we would have to be consistent. I couldn't have my desk job. I'd have to quit and go be a farmer. I'd have to be Farmer Kevin and uh, you know, figure out, well, okay, well, I've, I've got to work by the sweat of my brow. And I, I think that, first of all, that's an interesting point to show the inconsistency. But actually, to answer your question, I would say that the point of Genesis 3.16 is not to show how things should be but how things should not have been. And so now, especially as Christians, our goal is not to accept the fact that there's sin in the world and just say, well, that's the way it is. Let's let's just go ahead and accept sin and 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 let's just kind of almost lean into it. I would say that kingdom living tells us to fight against that, to say, hey, there's always going to be racism. There's always going to be hate. There's always going to be uh, misogynist behavior. All of those things are always going to exist, but Galatians 3, we'll get into this a little bit later. Is that the way kingdom living should be? Is that what we should strive for? Yes, there will always be these problems, but we shouldn't 
justify them. We shouldn't try to live up to them. We should try to fight against them. Well, and it seems like the entire purpose of the gospel is to restore, at least in a spiritual sense, that Edenic ideal of what life should be in Christ as his image bearers. And we see that reflected in the garden before the fall. So Mm -hmm. that's the ideal that we pursue, not not the consequences of the fall itself. So I I think that makes a lot of sense. But that also doesn't ignore the reality either. And even Wes brought this up. I mean, when we're talking about Galatians 3.28, there's 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 there was still slave and free. There was still Jew and Gentile, right? Like all of a sudden that just didn't go away. Those were still realities. There was still male and female. All of a sudden, when you're baptized, you don't just you know, become this, this new androgynous blob. Right. Right. And and so I think even we see this with Jesus when he's teaching on the sermon on the Mount, he's teaching these kingdom living high standard principles that are really issues of attitude in the heart. And a lot of times he goes back to the garden, especially when it comes to marriage and and, and things of that nature. But ultimately we understand that we're going to fall short. <laughs> like we're, we're, we, we're humans. If we have sinned and we all have, we're going to fall short, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive. It's not that God is saying, okay, give to everybody who asks literally. He's saying, this is the kind of heart. This is the kind of attitude that you should have. And, and so when Jesus is, is bringing everything into the kingdom and we see Paul, not just in Galatians 3.28, but I believe a, a, a principle that is repeated, a narrative arc that we're all one in Christ Jesus, which we're already kind of getting on Galatians 3.28 right now. But when you see that, I think the point is that things need to go back to the way they were. Not that they actually can because sin has entered the world, but that we should try, we should strive. That's to be the ideal. One. That is the ideal. Yes, we're going to fall well short of that, no doubt about it. You know, the ideal is for us not to sin, but the reality is we are, but we should strive for that ideal, not just say, oh, well, now sin's into the world and, you know, this yeah. is just the way it is. Well, and I think that recognizing that that's the case and also recognizing that so much of that mode of thinking is embedded within the cultural context of Scripture plays a large role in placing that in its proper perspective. And that really gets into the second point that we're going to be getting into as it relates to cultural context. And it's the argument of the position of the firstborn. You know, the idea is that, well, Adam as the firstborn of creation and Adam made first, Adam was made first and then Eve, which is something that Paul says, but we'll, we'll talk about that context later. Um, this idea indicates that Adam was supposed to exert authority over Eve from the very beginning, because just simply by the fact that he was made first, he's the firstborn, Eve was not. And so in, in that sense, Adam rules over Eve. He has um, authority over Eve. Eve is subordinate to him for that reason. And that firstborn argument, at first blush, you can make it make sense. But if you really dig into it, I just don't find this argument compelling for reasons that we're going to discuss now. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So Wes really tend to uh, lean into this argument, this this idea of the firstborn argument, was, which was interesting to me because I really haven't heard very many complementarians use this as their rationale. Most just would quote 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 and, and kind of let that be that. But Wes really, really talked about this a lot. And and I felt like probably our audience may have not really understood what his point was, because if you if you don't understand this idea of the firstborn within that context, especially the ancient Near East, then maybe it kind of went over your head. And so first, let me say that Wes was making a very valid point within the context 
of oh, its yeah. day, um, where in, in the ancient Near East, the firstborn was given certain unique rights, responsibilities, and privileges, and so on and so forth. And so, as you pointed out, the argument is, since God created Adam first, he was the firstborn, and therefore, the Genesis story actually does teach that the female was to be in subordination because God created male first. He created Adam first. And so they the male does have responsibilities, rights, and privileges that the female does not have. And, and this is the framework for some, including Wes, understanding that the man had responsibilities and rights that the woman or wife does not have. And, and I do admire and understand where this position is coming from. But I do find it very problematic, and here's why. So first, there's nothing about the idea of firstborn until after the fall. And this goes back to what we were just talking about. Everything that you can try to read in to male being over female can only come after the fall. That's the only time that we see any arguments being made is after the fall. So once again, I think this is reading into the creational story, something that just isn't there. But more importantly, this whole idea of firstborn is heavily based on a unique cultural idea that the firstborn male was important. And the reason is because he was believed to represent the prime of human strength and vitality as the opener of the womb. And this isn't just represented in the ancient Near Eastern context, but this is also represented in the Bible, which is also an ancient Near East context. So we see this in Exodus 13, 2, Exodus uh, 13, 12, and 15, Numbers 18, 15, and Luke 2, 23. Now, I hope I don't lose my audience here because we're going to get a little deep into context of how this idea of the firstborn came to be. Well, the reason is, as I just stated, they believed, especially for the human, the male, that that firstborn child, they represented the prime of human strength because it was the one that kind of opened up the womb. And so this belief of the first was culturally important, and not just in the Bible, but with surrounding nations as well, that ancient Near Eastern context. And we see this represented in the Bible with other things, such as the first fruits of the harvest. They were always viewed as the best. And even Paul talks about giving the first fruits. That was basically the same thing as saying give the best. But when it came to physical fruit, they believed that the first fruits were also the best. When it came to physical food, they believed it was the best. When it came to the firstborn animals, they believed those were the best. That male, the firstborn, they were the best. So the ancients viewed the birthing process of humans to that of agriculture. Now, this is where things get very interesting, Lee. And I know you're very familiar with this. We've talked a lot about this, and I'm going to mention this um, quite a bit in my book. And I think you brought this up in some of the episodes when we got into science. But in the Bible, it's presupposed that only the male had the capability of carrying the seed, and the woman was only the field, for lack of better words, that grew and nurtured the seed. So this is why the woman was always to blame if a baby couldn't be produced because they thought at that time it was her field that was barren because they didn't realize that it wasn't just the male that, that, that was carrying the seed or played a part, but it was also the female. They didn't realize that. They thought the woman was nothing more than just the field because they based this on agriculture. So just as the first fruits were the best, so, were, so was the firstborn, specifically the male. And the reason is because lineage was extremely important back then, and it was thus viewed that the male 
was the most important. Why? Because he was the only one who had the seed. Well, the female, they didn't believe had any seed. You know, she, she wasn't important. It's got to be the firstborn male if we want to continue on with our, uh, with our lineage here. And I believe this also can explain polygamy and concubines and things of that nature. But that's, that's a completely different, different subject. But the point is, is that the firstborn's birthright in, involved a double portion of the household estate and the leadership of the family if his father became inco- uh, like unable to, to run the family or was absent for some reason. And so it was understood that only through the male that the lineage could continue. Because so, the male had the seed. The it, male it, was the only yeah, one who had the seed. Yeah. The woman was just the field. So now we look at that and go, well, that's primitive. And not just primitive, that's that's false. <laughs> yeah. They didn't understand genetic recombination. They didn't understand the concept of haploid and diploid gametes. They didn't understand the concepts of chromosomes. I mean, I mean, we barely understood the concepts of chromosomes until the last 100 years or so. I mean, even maybe even the last 60 years. We didn't even know yeah. what chromosomes were. We didn't even know what DNA was until the 1960s. And, you know, to understand this, and it's it's not to say that people back then were stupid. They weren't. Some of the most intelligent, smart people that have ever lived, lived in ancient times and in antiquity. I mean, I remember what Sir Isaac Newton said. If I can see further than anyone else, it's only from standing on the shoulders of giants. They based what they knew from what they could observe. And they would do the same thing we do. They would liken new information and concepts that they maybe didn't understand very well to things that they understood very well. And in an agrarian society, you understand the concept of seed and soil. And that was their view of biological reproduction. And our good friend, Dennis Lemmeru has written on that extensively. Check out his books, read about that. It'll help you make a whole lot of sense. But no, Kevin, you're exactly right on the mark with that. Yeah, and, and so within context, it did make sense for them to view the firstborn male as the most important because that's how they understood uh, by all that. That's how they believe things worked. I mean that that was that was their understanding, and so yes, that's why the firstborn and not just the firstborn, but the firstborn male was so important. So I think to use that as your framework is to make the mistake of taking a belief that was culturally understood at the time, which has now been proven to be false anyway. It was a misunderstanding, but it was one that they believed in all sincerity at that time. But if you're taking that as your framework now and then turning it into something universally applicable for all times, I I just don't think that that's fair. I don't think you can do that with a context. But furthermore, when we come to the New Testament, the idea of first being the best gets flipped on its head when Jesus talks about how the first will be the last and the last shall be first. Now, I understand that's not talking about the firstborn and things of that nature in Matthew twenty sixteen, but it is, I believe, an overarching principle that we do see Jesus saying that those who were, at one point were last or second, now they will be first. And so there's this equalization going on about how now all are equal, all are on the same level, all are all part of the royal priesthood even. 1 Peter 2.9, and this was crazy to say that a female could be part of the royal priesthood because before it was not just a male, but it was a male from the tribe of Levi, not just a male from the tribe of Levi, but a male from the tribe of Levi who had enough hair, who didn't have any scars on his body, who didn't have any deformities, and, and all these different requirements. It was so specific, but now... The New Testament says, hey, all are part of the royal priesthood, both male and female. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, all are equal ambassadors. And even I think more importantly, in Romans 8, 17 and Galatians 4, 7, Paul says all are equal 
heirs and children of God. So even if the argument was in the Old Testament, the reason why uh, a female had to be in subordination to a male is because this understanding of the firstborn, which I don't even think that's true. But even if you were to take that idea, I believe this gets corrected in the New Testament by yeah. saying, well, hey, sure, if you were the firstborn male, yeah, you were more important. You had more responsibility. You had more privileges and rights. But now are equal heirs and children of God, whether you're male, whether you're female. And by the way, I want to add this in there because I don't even think the argument of the firstborn, even if you're going to make that, is very clear. I think that that's something that is is asserted in my opinion. Okay, so I, I'm not trying to demean West, but I just think that that is kind of an assertion to begin with because it's it's kind of hard to to, to see where that argument is really made. I don't ever see that argument made. Uh, in the Bible. Uh, and, and we're going to get to Paul here in a moment where he does reference the creation and he talks about Adam being born first. But I don't think that the actual idea of the firstborn argument as we're discussing it right now and that as some have utilized is is even seen in Scripture. I think that's an assertion to begin with. But I also think a side point, it's interesting that Jesus was born of a woman who never knew a man. And that's not just important to us. That would have really meant something in their day and time where they believed that the woman didn't even have the seed, any anything to do with the seed, anything to do with the production of a baby other than just being the field in which it grows. And so here we see that Jesus came through a, a woman who never knew a man, who never had sex with a man. And so from a human perspective, this was all a woman's job. Whereas before bringing a child in the world was all the man's job for the for all practical purposes, it was just him planting the seed. And I don't want to look too much into that, but I just think that it's interesting. And I heard somebody joke one time. They said, "Yeah, you know, a woman, uh, <laughs> men men today don't want uh, a woman, you know, to carry the word of God or to talk about the word of God." But, you know, she's the one who carried the word of God and carried truly the word of God for for nine months. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, I just think it's interesting, though, when you, she, you know, she was the one truly proclaiming the word of God physically in her body, if you will. And I just think it's very interesting when you take that whole concept of how they understood the firstborn, how they understood the the reproductive process and how the male had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus coming into the world. It was only the female. Well, it's incredibly interesting in terms of the firstborn theology that that drives some of these points that that some folks take that limits women's participation within worship and in other aspects and facets of life. And from a contextual point of view, I can see the force of this argument because it's it's absolutely true that this was a part of that ancient Near Eastern context. But man, whenever you said that we have taken or folks that that ascribe to this argument, they have taken a culturally embedded truth and they have made it universally universally applicable for all time. You know that that's a misstep. And I think that the point you made about Jesus is really the strongest point. Whenever he says in Matthew 20, the first will be last and the last will be first. Of course, the context is different, but who was considered primo amongst everybody else? It was the firstborn. If you're going to talk about someone who is first, I mean, literally in birth order, the firstborn is first. But they were also, like you said, they were held in high regard, higher above anybody else. Yeah. But I also think that if if you make that argument, you run into some serious problems because you have a lot of foreshadowing to what Jesus said there throughout the body of Scripture as well. Even though in that ancient Near Eastern context, you had 
a greater emphasis and greater import based on the hierarchy of the family based on birth order and that the firstborn was more important than anybody else. You see that subverted over and over and over again throughout scripture. You don't just see that corrected within the new Testament, but you also see, in my opinion, some preparation towards that correction in the old Testament as well, because over and again, you see more honor and emphasis given to the second born throughout the scriptural narrative over and over again. And these aren't just exceptions to the rule. These are notable exceptions, in my opinion, that disproves that rule. I mean, you have Abel preferred over Cain because Abel offered, hey, the first fruits, right, of his flock. And Cain offered the first fruits of what he pulled out of the ground. Cain's offering was rejected, though Cain was the firstborn. Abel's was accepted. Cain, in a fury, kills Abel. Cain's cursed. He's cast out. You see Seth elevated over Cain, the thirdborn elevated over the firstborn. But you also see the same thing with Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn child to Abraham. And yet you see Isaac, the child of promise. He is the secondborn. Of course, he's the first and only child that Abraham and Sarah would have. Abraham had Ishmael with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. At Sarah's request, Sarah wanted Abraham to have a son so he would have an heir. And yet Ishmael is the firstborn to Abraham. And yet Isaac is the one who is elevated and who's the child of promise. You see Jacob elevated over Esau. Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is elevated over him. And that is based on the subterfuge of, of, um, of Rebecca, Jacob's mother. But you see God emphasizing this as well. You see Moses elevated over Aaron. Aaron was the firstborn. Moses was not. You see David selected as the preeminent king of Israel, the best king of Israel over his older brothers. He's the youngest. He was out tending the flocks. He was not even on Jesse's radar whenever Samuel rolls into town to anoint a new king. You see Joseph elevated over Reuben, the oldest of, of Jacob's sons. And even Jesus is referred to as the second born, we might say, compared to Adam. You have the first Adam being Adam himself. And then you have Jesus as the second Adam or the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're going to argue that as the firstborn of creation, Adam had a greater role to play, greater responsibility, and therefore um, greater authority over Eve, well, you run into some issues because if man possesses intrinsic natural authority just based on birth order, you have a big problem with all of this emphasis of the second born over the first throughout <laughs> scripture. So, I mean, for that reason, the, the first born argument is just not a compelling argument to me. There's just too much in scripture itself that subverts that idea. This gets back to descriptive versus prescriptive as well, because yeah. th there, there's no doubt that as far as the Bible's concerned, it describes the firstborn being more important. There, there's, there's no doubt about that. I don't know of anyone who argues that. But the basis of that belief, I believe, is twofold. It's, it's based upon a faulty understanding, first of all, of, of, how, uh, of, of how things work as far as male and female and as far as the birth, the birthing process and, the, and things of that nature. I think, first of all, it's it's based on a faulty understanding of how they understood reproductive biology at that point in time. But second of all, and more importantly, I think it's based upon the results of the uh, of sin entering the world. I don't I don't think it's something that the Bible ever holds up as the ideal. It just describes this is the way things are and this is the way things uh, have been. 
It's not that it's the way it should be. It's just the reality, and it's the result of sin entering the world. And if you're cool with this, I may want to go ahead really quickly because I'm sure there's people out there chomping at the bit. Well, what about 1 Timothy 2? Is, not, is that not exactly the point Paul makes? And so we're going to get to 1 Timothy 2, but let me first, can I just make a quick, quick response to that, Lee? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because I know how I am, and I'm listening to us, and I'm thinking, okay, but what about First Timothy two? And I even know how I would respond, but I'm sure there's people, <laughs> there's people out there saying, well, what about Paul? So in First Timothy two, verse eleven, Paul says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to, to assume authority over a man. We're going to get to that a little bit later, but here's the point I want to focus on right here that a lot of people utilize as the reason why they do believe God created the male to have authority over the female. Because verse 13, Paul says, Adam was formed first, then Then Eve. Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with with propriety. So how do we answer this? Well, I'm just going to give you a quick little answer first, because what I think is going on here, and I'm going to deal with that second part, because we're going to come back and deal with that first part later. But where Paul says Adam was formed first, then Eve, I don't believe Paul is making that comment in relation to uh, why a woman cannot teach or have authority over a man creationally or universally. I don't think that's Paul's point. I believe what Paul's saying is, Paul's making the point, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, we do know, though, that based upon the context, Adam sinned as well, but Adam was not the one who was actually deceived. So I think what what is going on here is Paul is actually going back to the creation account, and he's going to Genesis 3.16. He said, okay, man was formed first, then woman, but sin entered the world. It wasn't Adam who was deceived. He sinned, but he wasn't deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. And what was the consequence of that? Well, Genesis 3.16, the consequence is that a woman desire will be for her husband to rule over her. And so I don't think Paul is going pre-sin to make his point here because he even talks about deception. Well, when did deception happen? It happened in Genesis 3 when or after sin had entered the world or when sin entered the world, if you will. So I still think Paul's argument cannot be placed prior to Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. I think it was when and after sin entered the world that Paul's making his point. And I think he's basing it on the the descriptive consequences, not anything that's prescriptive. You see, I agree with that. And whenever we get to 1 Timothy 2, because that's the last part that we're going to deal with in this discussion. So you guys stay tuned for that. You're not going to want to miss it because it's it's a humdinger. It's a doozy. You're going to love it. But I'm in full agreement with everything you said, but I even think there's an even deeper layer to that that we'll get into whenever we get into that passage. But I, I think you're on the mark there, but there's a lot more to it than that as it relates to yeah, that's, Paul's reference to deception. And we'll, we'll talk a, about that when we get there. That's a super oversimplified uh, answer. But I, I just bring that up to for those people listening right now to say, well, isn't that the argument Paul makes? That's what I used to think. That's what Wes believes, and that's what many complementarians believe. People people use that to say, well, Paul here is talking about pre-sin because he he brings up 
when God created Adam, when God created Eve. But I don't think he does that in exclusion to sin entering the world. And so that would be the difference between the way I interpret and understand that passage versus how I used to. Used to, I would say, hey, Paul's talking about pre-sin, where I would say, no, Paul's not talking about pre-sin. He's talking about the consequences of what happened when sin entered the world. Yeah, the emphasis is the fruit that that sin brought in. That's where the emphasis is because of the deception. We'll get into that when we get there, but... You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is this idea related to the firstborn of descriptive language versus prescriptive language. And that leads us into the second, the, the next section that we're going to discuss. And that is the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 um, verses 1 through 12, in which the principle of head covering is, is described. And here Paul is prescribing instructions for the church in Corinth related to head coverings. But in that there's descriptive language that implies that women were taking a full participatory role within the worship of the early church. Yes, and we probably are going to do a whole episode sometime in the future on the head covering because that in and of itself is a super interesting issue. And Lee, I know you've done a whole lot more study on that than I have. Well, we keep touching on it and we keep pointing back to it. We keep referring to it, <laughs> so we probably should do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we need we need to do it. We need to do it. But this is this is uh, this was kind of a game changer for me. First Corinthians chapter eleven because here we actually read about women prophesying. Women were prophesying, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 12. And the, the word here for authority in verses 3 and 5, in fact, let me just pull this up and kind of read it, and then we can give a brief commentary as we go. And I don't want to get into the head covering uh, too much because I feel like that's going to take away from really our point at hand. But I, I do want to start with 1 Corinthians 11 because here Paul is talking about how I'll just start with verse, uh, really verse two here. He says, I praise you for remembering me and everything and holding to the traditions as I pass them on to you. And verse three is the verse that I used to use to teach that the male was, was over the female. And here's why. Verse three says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. I love that verse when I believed in co in full out complementarianism because I thought it made the point brilliantly and, and simplistically. The problem is is that the word here, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. We have to ask ourselves what exactly is Paul's point and what does that word mean? Now, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that that Greek word, but the word that's that that is uh, translated there is head. It also oftentimes is translated as source, has nothing to do with authority over, but about the source in which one, how one came to be. So the reason why I believe that understanding the word head here is as source and not authority is the proper understanding is because it's consistent with verses seven through nine, where Paul alludes to Genesis two. And check this out, Lee. It says, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. But on the other hand, interpreting this phrase as authority is inconsistent with verses 11 and 12 because Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man came from woman. <laughs> so I don't think Paul's talking about authority here because what he's saying is, is okay, here is the source of everything. Okay. 
who who created Jesus? And when I say created, I'm saying the source of Jesus in the human flesh. I believe that Jesus is 100% God, and I believe he's eternal and all of those types of things. But as far as Jesus, not just his deity, but his man, who did he come from? Well, ultimately, we would say God created him, but he came from woman. So does that mean that that Jesus now is somehow in subordination to a woman. And when you look at verses 12, it even says, for as woman came from man, so also man comes from from woman or is born of woman. But then he goes on to say, but everything comes from who? Comes from God. God. So I don't think that this is an authoritative passage in the sense of, or well, not authoritative passage. I don't believe that this is Paul talking about authority. I don't think he's sitting here trying to give the the line of authority because if so, it would it would have to be true to say, well, any man who was born of a woman, which by the way, would that not be every single man who was born of a woman is somehow in subordination to her. So this is this is to me where there's great inconsistency because in verses three and five we want to say, ah, here head means authority. But in verses eleven and twelve it means source. Well, it's the same word. And so to be consistent, I think that you would have to argue that this is talking about the source and how everything comes from God and is not talking about authoritative positions or of who is head over the other as far as subordination is concerned. Well, and dude, it just this goes to just show how important context is, because different words can mean different things in different contexts. You know, if I if I ask you how your running is going. And you're a runner. You like to run. And you tell me, oh, man, I'm running great, but this plantar fasciitis, it's been getting to me, but I'm still trying to get three miles in every day. That's going to be completely different than if you're running for for mayor of Shawnee. Hey, how's your yeah. running going? Oh, well, it's going well. I'm, I'm, I'm trailing in the polls, but I'm catching up. I'm closing that gap. And if that's the, you know, different words are going to have different contexts depending on how they're used. And we're going to kind of get into this whenever we get into the next section on on First Corinthians fourteen. But but the idea in, in the general sense is we either use First Corinthians fourteen and First Timothy two to interpret the rest of Scripture, or we can use the rest of the body of Scripture to interpret those passages. And this idea of the word kephale, which is that's the Greek word, its pronunciation is kephale. If if you're going to say that that means head in terms of authority, well, what's driving that decision to make that interpretive choice? And for a lot of people, it's that baked in presupposition that they bring to the text that this has to do with man establishing authority over woman, which is then going to color a global application of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. Women are to be in silent. Women are to learn in silence. Women are not to teach over a man or usurp authority over a man. Women are to be subordinate to men. The reading of 1 Corinthians 11 requires that authoritative headship interpretation. It requires that if that's the position you have. But the inconsistencies are glaring and they are obvious. If we just take 1 Corinthians 14 out of the Bible, and I'm sure there are going to be people that are saying, well, you just want to take that out of the Bible. No, contextualizing a passage is not taking it from the Bible. It's receiving it as it would be intended to be received. It is reading it as the author intended to present it. That's what that is. And if we just take this and we follow the context, the source translation of that word head 
means or it makes way more sense than the authoritative one. It's more consistent within the literary context of the entire passage itself, and it makes sense within the broader context of Scripture as well. It does, and I also think that you know, if authority is based on creation order, and that was the argument that I used for many years, what happens to the authority when the order is reversed, as it is here in 1 Corinthians 11? And that's, that is something that a lot of people have never, at least I didn't, really sit down to, to think about. Like, okay, well, if my argument is, well, the, the man is over female because the man's created first. Okay, well, what happens when a woman gives birth to a female first over, over the son? And there, there now we have a reversal. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12 here says, For as woman came from man, so also man came from woman. I just don't see here how in the world you, we can ignore that verse and, and just take verses two and three. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people do, or not just two, just verse three. They just, they just want to stick to that verse three there without looking further, specifically at verse 12, where Paul says, so also man is born of woman, and but everything comes from God. And it, it's almost kind of this idea, Lee, when you look at this passage, specifically talking about the subject under consideration, the idea of sin, when Paul opens up in Romans 1 and says the Gentiles have sinned, which the Jews were like, yeah, you know, that's right. And then and then he's like, but, but you know, the Jews have sinned too. And then chapter 3, everyone has sinned, this, this equalization. It's almost, you're seeing the same thing here. Okay, well, God created man first. Hey, all right, you know, yay for, for man. We're, we're, man's created first. And then he's like, but, but you know, now men are, are coming from, from women. Men are being born of, of women. and But then he goes on and equalizes and says, but everything comes from God. <laughs> so the point is not fighting over who's the best and who came from, from what. The point is everything comes from God. Not, oh, I'm better because I'm a male or I'm better because I'm a female. It's no. We, we can debate all those, all those little silly things all day long, but the bottom line Paul's making is the ultimate source is God. God's the source of, of everything. Absolutely. And even whenever we take this into consideration and we think about this in terms of source, everything flows and everything makes much more sense to the point that Paul is wanting to make as it relates to head coverings. And it also, though, raises a question, though. Because this idea of head coverings, and this is something we'll talk about when we do this episode, because I guess we're going to do an episode on head coverings. One of the biggest arguments as it relates to head covering is the idea of, well, is this related to a head covering within a worship service itself? Or is this related to a head covering, those who take the idea or the position that the uncut hair on a woman's head is her covering? And we'll, we'll talk about that when we do that episode. But this is not referencing the assembly. This is not referencing a worship service. This is a reference to just our day-to-day life, that Paul doesn't even have a worship service in mind whenever he's talking about this. And that delineation is made in verse 17 whenever Paul starts getting into the Lord's Supper. And I know you had something that you wanted to mention about the Lord's Supper, which is why I'm kind of bringing this up at this point. Yes, and so one of the the points that I have learned over the past few years is that the Lord's Supper, the way we do it today and the way they would have done it in the earliest church uh, in the first century is completely different. 
And this is not just me hypothesizing. This is based upon all the evidence that we have. And a lot of times people have a revisionist interpretation. And, and I, by the way, fall prey to this too. And we all do. Revisionist interpretation is this is how things currently are. And so when I read the Bible, I'm going to, I'm going to interpret it based upon how I'm currently doing it. And so since we're doing the Lord's Supper with a thimble full of grape juice and a, a little cracker, um, then, then that must be the way that they did it back then. And when you look at, which growing up as a one cup early, I'm sure it had been a little bit different, but I'm sure you didn't chug the whole thing. You know, it had been a little sip and just a little, a little a bite of the, yeah. of the unleavened bread. And so what we what tends to happen is we that's the way we've done it and that's the way we do it today and that's the way it's been done for so long we just assume well when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper he's talking about all of us with our heads held low just taking a little sip and, and eating a little chip of of this unleavened bread unfortunately that has really hurt our understanding of what the Lord's Supper was really like and that's why I call it a revisionist interpretation, because when you look at the Lord's Supper, first of all, from everything we know about the Passover, about all the Jewish feasts, about all the memorial meals, and even coming to the New Testament with love feasts, this is the context of 1 Corinthians 11. And there's no reason, first of all, to believe that this would have been done any different than any other feast or any other memorial meal, because that's all they would have known. And that contextually, we have rabbinic literature. That's how they did it. And so with that said, this would have been a meal. This would have been them coming together. This would have been them partaking. They were waiting on one another. Well, they weren't waiting on one another. Paul says they needed to be waiting on one another, which is very interesting for churches who uh, say, hey, come back Sunday night. We're going to put you in a back room somewhere and two or three of you who aren't here this morning. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to get off on that soapbox. But the point is, is that, that this was a meal. And there is absolutely no reason to believe that women would have not been talking during the Lord's Supper. And why is that? Because women talked at Passover. They talked at Jewish feasts. They talked at memorial meals. They talked at love feasts. In fact, when you look at a lot of these home churches, these house churches, which is where the first century met, the the, the woman, in some cases, would have been the one coordinating or for maybe what we would call emceeing the, the worship service, if you will. And to say that she wasn't talking during the Lord's Supper and and, and Wes brought this point up, and I didn't want to get into it um, on the show or bring this point up because I wanted him to, to make, make it. But he, he referenced the early church fathers, and he said, well, when you look at the early church fathers, they basically had one person who was up there, and he was the one that was coordinating it, and he was the one that was directing it. And Wes is absolutely true about that. When you look at the early church, when you start looking 100 years after, 150 years after the, um, the first century church, yes, you do see the Lord's Supper had changed dramatically. But my point is, is that that's not the way it was. That's not the way it would have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and in the book, Pagan Christianity, I want to read this section here. It's very short. Now it's on page 193 and uh, 193 and 194 here. They talk about this. They say in the first and early second centuries, the early Christians called the Lord's Supper the love feast. At that time, they took the bread and cup in the context of a festive meal. But around the time of Tertullian, the bread and the cup began to be separated from the meal. And by the late 2nd century, this separation was complete. 
Some scholars have argued that the Christians dropped the meal because they wanted to keep the Lord's Supper from becoming profaned by the participation of unbelievers. While this may be partly true, it is more likely that the growing influence of pagan religious rituals removed the supper from the joyful, down-to-earth, non-religious atmosphere of a meal in someone's home and living room. In fact, by the 4th century, the love feast was actually prohibited among Christians. While the abandonment of the meal, the terms breaking of bread and Lord's Supper disappeared. The common, ter- the, uh, common term for the now... Um, for the now ritual, which was just ended up becoming the bread and the cup, was the Eucharist. Irenaeus was one of the first to call the bread and cup an offering, and after him it began to be called the offering or sacrifice. The altar table where the bread and cup were placed came to be uh, seen as an altar where the victim was offered. The supper was no longer a community event or meal. It was now a a priestly ritual that was to be watched at a distance. Throughout the 4th and 5th centuries, there was an increasing sense of awe and dread associated with the table where the sacred Eucharist was celebrated. It became a somber ritual instead of a joyful celebration. The joy of a common meal, or the, uh, the joy of a communal meal among Christians that had once been a part had now vanished. And within this, they give references and all sorts of uh, data and sources to back what they're saying. The point, though, is that this was something that was a common meal. To say that women were not talking in the Lord's Supper, um, in my estimation, is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I mean, it, it is it, it literally to me to say, oh, in the first century, when a group of 20 or 30 Christians were taking this festive meal, women were not talking. Um, it, it literally blows my mind, especially when you just do a, a brief historical Uh, just a brief just survey, historical survey to see how things changed within the first few centuries with the early church fathers. And so uh, my my main point here is that I just don't see how how you can argue that the Lord's Supper, which is part of the assembly, that women were not supposed to be talking during the Lord's Supper. That just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, it makes perfect sense, Kevin. And you completely miss 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. You absolutely miss that, brother. You see, the Apostle Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Man, it's just right there in black and white. And that well, really it, gets, oh, it, well, and what that does is, is that gets to the root of the tension that we see between 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. Because we've, we've spent an hour now discussing these other, I would call them more tangential positions and arguments that people use for this idea. But we're getting ready to dive really now into the nitty gritty of the main texts that are utilized that limit women's full participation within worship. And that's 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 and 1 Timothy 2. Yep. So well, I just wanted to say this because you're right. And for the audience you were being sarcastic in case they they didn't pick up on that. <laughs> Hopefully they did. But 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 you were correct in that what happens is when we have what what I call pre-committed verses. So we have verses that we're pre-committed to already and that no matter what type of evidence to the contrary um, would 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 prove our conclusion about certain verses wrong if that's if those are the verses we're pre-committed to then then that's what we're going to stick with. And so what happens is 1 Corinthians 14, 33 and 34 and 1 Timothy 2, those are like the power passages that people interpret everything else. They read the rest of the Bible through those two verses instead of saying, let's read the whole Bible 
and interpret 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 through the rest of Scripture instead of interpreting all of Scripture through these two Bible verses. And that's where people have to begin to make special pleading. They have to have some cognitive dissonance and saying, well, I guess since Paul said women can't talk, then then they were not talking during the Lord's Supper, even though there's there were the, the evidence abounds that women would be talking during the Lord's Supper. But even furthermore, Lee, singing. I don't know of a single member of the Church of Christ or any other fundamental group or either fundamental Christian who says it's wrong for a woman to sing in the worship assembly. But if Paul meant 1 Corinthians 14.33, a woman was to remain silent, then that would literally mean that a woman could not sing. So now we would have to say, well, a woman wasn't talking during the Lord's Supper, which most people are already at that point anyway, uh, even though that's contrary to the evidence that we have in Scripture and history. But then people would have to go as far to say, well, no, women couldn't even be singing. But we all, we make exceptions for that. Well, that's all right for women to be No, it's not. If Paul said to be silent and that's the way we're interpreting that verse, then, to, then that's the way we have to interpret that verse. If we're willing to say, well, wait a minute, if women can sing in the assembly, maybe Paul, maybe what Paul said didn't actually mean what I think it means. And that's that's the point a lot of people, uh, Lee, haven't stopped to consider. I didn't stop to consider that. I was fine letting women speak through singing, even yeah. though Paul said they would remain silent. I was fine making that exception. You know why I was fine making that exception? Because that's what we were already doing. <laughs> we yeah, tend to find funny. exceptions for, for, for what we're, our practices were already doing. But okay, what about the Lord's Supper? Could women talk in the Lord's Supper if there's enough evidence to prove that? Well, yeah, women can talk in the Lord's Supper. Okay, so if a woman can sing, if a woman can talk in the Lord's Supper, could a woman pray and prophesy in the assembly? So, so that's where we're going now. So let's well, of, let's talk of about course, this. Of course, she couldn't, Kevin. A woman couldn't pray or prophesy in the assembly, not <laughs> at all. And then the then the question is is well, okay, then wait a minute. What's the point of First Corinthians eleven? Because, yeah, the main point that Paul's making here is the idea that women are to wear a head covering whenever they what? Whenever they pray or prophesy, right? Yeah. right? So this idea, well, okay, they're not praying and prophesying. I know the way that I always heard it taught and the way I used to teach it is, is, well, they're not praying or prophesying in public. So now you get into this delineation of, well, what's in private and what's in public, and so that's why a lot of people would say, well, those first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11 are not referring to the worship assembly. They're just referring to life in general and life in and of itself. The, the change in which Paul begins to talk about the assembly itself happens in verse 17. Because in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, but in the following instructions, referring to the Lord's Supper, which is why we brought that little side trail up in the first place. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. You see here, he says, when you come together. So now he's talking about when you come together. But in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. And in yeah. Jamie, Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary and in Vine's um, Bible dictionary and in other resources that, that I looked at just myself, this idea or this word traditions is translated ceremonies. This is the same language that Paul uses in second Thessalonians two and 15, where previously he talked about that strong delusion that I'm sure you and I really like to lean on to try to explain why some people just wouldn't accept the truth. Um, 
about how God would send them strong delusion and et cetera, et cetera. He exhorts his brethren to hold to the traditions that they had received from him and the other apostles, whether in word or letter. Well, what traditions is he talking about? If you say that he's talking about traditions in a global sense, well, that certainly includes the assembly, does it not? So then if that's the case and these traditions include those things that are taking a place within an assembly, then it stands to reason that 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 is referencing traditions that are happening in the assembly. And then he goes on in his discourse about praying and prophesying with their heads covered appropriately. Yeah, the idea that says 1 Corinthians 11, 3 and following is not talking about the assembly is really problematic. And I think it 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 leaves a, a lot to be desired. And here's why. First of all, Paul was already discussing the assembly in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. And he, he had been as far back as 1 Corinthians 5, because there he talked about how they were uh, assembled together as a church. And there he's talking about church discipline. And he says, when you come together as a church. So to try, and, and once again, no, no disrespect to those who want to separate that, but to try and say, well, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, all, 2 through 16 are not talking about the assembly, but as soon as verse 17 hits, it's talking about the assembly. Especially pleading, man. I, I think it is, and I think it kind of exposes the fact that, okay, well, that means if 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about the assembly, then then that that's a powerful point. But here's what a lot of people miss, Lee, and I can't emphasize this enough. If you believe women can sing in the assembly, You've got you've got problems. You've got problems with First Corinthians chapter fourteen. Now, when I say you got problems, I think that they can be reconciled. Don't get you got me wrong. Tension there for sure. But though. but yes, there there is tension for we we. I don't know why people want to try to get around all these other verses while having women sing in in worship because singing is considered teaching. It's considered admonishing. I mean, it is considered speaking. This is the same language that Paul's saying that women cannot do. And it's the same type of language, okay? So when you when you come to uh, the assembly and say, well, women can sing, but the reason they can't teach is because Paul says women have to remain silent, there's an inconsistency. Either you have to reinterpret 1 Corinthians 14 to include women to be able to sing, and women to be able to do other things, or you have to say, well, you know what? Come this Sunday, we're going to tell our women when we're gathered together as a church, they can't sing anymore because Paul tells them that they 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 need to be silent. And that's that, that, that to me, is the elephant in the room in this conversation. And I don't see how I missed it for so many years. But let's go back real quick because I just want to make a, a couple points on this. First Corinthians 14. Well, just real quick, though, you have Paul yeah. contradicting Paul, and I think I know where you're going, so I'm just kind of helping you segue into it, brother. But yeah, you have Paul contradicting Paul, but you also have Paul contradicting a much greater body of Scripture. Sure, and well, and so, first of all, I don't see a distinction. I don't think you can make a distinction in 1 Corinthians 11 and say, well, the first part where Paul's talking about prophesying, that's that's privately 
And then verse 17, that's when Paul begins talking about this worship assembly. I just, I don't see that there. And once that again, their structure is based upon that pre-understanding that this is what it has to mean because this is what I already believe. At least right. that's my opinion on that. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if you're just reading that, you don't see that because Paul, P- Paul already goes to, and like I said, as far back as first Corinthians five and talks about the assembly. And so uh, to, to try and um, parse out when Paul's talking about what we would call the assembly and when he's not, this this would that would just be so so it seems to be very arbitrarily done. But here's the second thing. The giving of prophecy took place among Christians assembled together. Now now let, let me emphasize this here because this is vital to understand. In both the Old Testament or in the Old Testament, first, there were female prophets who prophesied above, among both men and women. We see in the the prophet Micah in the Old Testament wrote that Miriam was a co-leader of Israel with Moses and Aaron. We see Miriam leading worship in Exodus 15. And according to Micah 6.4, Miriam wasn't just the ladies' prophecy leader. She was a worship and prophecy leader over both men and women. And uh, uh, Huldah also was a prophetess who prophesied in front of men, 2 Kings 22, 14 through 20. Deborah was a judge and prophetess over both males and females, Judges 4, 4 through 7. Isaiah's own wife was a prophetess. People say, oh no, you know, we're, we, we believe in equality. Well, how many people do you think right now listening to this realize that Isaiah's wife was a prophetess? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't either for I a long time. just now, man. <laughs> and so we know about Isaiah, but we don't know much about his wife. Anna, the, Anna was a prophetess who prophesied in the temple, Luke 2, 36 through 38. I don't think she just went over in a corner and didn't do who Was she just prophesying to herself? I mean, look, pro, Philip's daughters prophesied, Acts 20, 21, verse 9. Priscilla is mentioned along with her husband seven times in the New Testament. And get this, Lee, out of the seven listings, Priscilla's name occurs first in five of the seven. And that actually does signify a sense of authority oftentimes when being written. Yeah. So I just... I find that interesting. So I don't think it's enough to write these off as random exceptions. And that's usually how this is done. It's, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got about eight or nine examples here, but you know, those are all exceptions. That's not the rule that God really placed. And uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, though, and here's the kicker for me, Lee. Prophecy is a sign for believers for when they come together. Now, 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 let's just put this together real quick. Females were prophets in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 even prophesied about women prophesying. <laughs> so, so, Acts, so Acts 2, Philip's daughters, we see that 1 Corinthians 11, women are prophets. Women are prophesying. When did prophecy take place? Well, 1 Corinthians 14, which is a text that everybody unanimously agrees, is talking about the assembly says that prophecy takes place in the assembly and it is a sign not for non-believers, but for believers for when they come together. So prophecy was to be done in the assembly according to 1 Corinthians 14. In fact, Lee, those prophesying had to submit themselves to the public evaluation and examination of other prophets within the assembly. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32. So 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 is not about uh, prohibiting women from teaching or speaking altogether. It can't be. 
unless it's wrong for women to speak by singing, unless women can't talk at the Lord's Supper, unless women are not prophets, which we know that they were. So I suggest that this is about silencing certain women in Corinth who wanted to learn, but were asking too many basic or personal questions during the church meetings. And Paul's solution to this problem is that these women should ask their hus- uh, these questions to their typically more educated husbands in the privacy of their homes. And I say typically more educated. People today hear that and they get offended. How dare you say men are more educated? During that time period, they were. by and large, they would have been. And most most women would have not been able to, to read during that time. Most men couldn't read during that time, but the ones who could read would have been predominantly men. And so the point here that I think is taking place is not Paul putting this universal 100% airtight restriction that says, women, when you're in the assembly, you can't speak. Because as I said, and I'll repeat again, that means women could not could not sing. It, it means women could literally not say anything. But that does not make any sense because if women were prophets and Paul told women to prophesy, later Paul goes on to say that prophecy happens within the assembly. It has to happen in the assembly. Why? Because that's how they had to submit themselves to the evaluation and examination of other prophets within the assembly. So to say that women were exempt or were excluded from this makes no sense whatsoever because prophecy happened in the assembly. Absolutely. I mean, Philip's daughters weren't out in a wheat field somewhere just, you know, prophesying to the wheat stalks. It's it it serves no purpose then. But but to me, it's even simpler than that. You know, this idea and this is and I, I don't want to make any any mistakes here. I love Wes. I respect him immensely. He's one of my favorite guests that we've had on our podcast, man. I love that guy and his podcast radically Christian that he hosts is phenomenal. It is definitely worth your time to check it out and listen to it. I'm saying, speaking to our listeners, y'all go check out Wes's podcast. It is phenomenal bar none. But one of the points he made, and and you just spent a good deal of time talking about this is that, well, these, these women who were prophets in the old Testament and these prophets in the new Testament, they're exceptions to the rule. It seems to me that if God didn't want women to prophesy, he would not have allowed them to prophesy, period. He would not have called upon them to prophesy, period. We would not be reading about Miriam. We would not be reading about Hulda. We would not be reading about uh, Priscilla. We would not be reading about Philip's daughters. That God did call upon them doesn't seem to be that he's making an exception to a rule. It seems to me that there's no rule at all. But But this idea even goes deeper than that. Like, Paul isn't making a blanket statement. And if he's not making a blanket statement, then what is he doing? It seems that he's telling disruptive people not to be disruptive. And if you look at that last passage there in 1 Corinthians 14, the statement Paul makes is let everything be done decently and in order. There was disorder taking place. There was disorder present within their gatherings whenever they would come together. And Paul goes on to talk about or rather previous to this, he talks about disorderly conduct and disorderly talk from different groups of people. And he talks about tongue speakers, prophets, and women. And if you would, would you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So when you get into this, I do think that contextually, as you just mentioned and I mentioned, this isn't talking universally. It can't be. It doesn't make any sense if it's talking universally. That wouldn't wouldn't make a lick of sense. It really wouldn't. And so there has to be another explanation, I believe, based upon all the other evidence and all the other verses and all the other contexts that we've been studying throughout both the Old and New Testaments. 
And Lee, you had mentioned before I get here too, you had mentioned about the whole idea of an exception. And that was something that I used to bring up a lot too and say, well, these are exceptions to the rule. The problem with that is I'm expecting to find as many women leaders as male leaders in the Bible. And that is a false presupposition based on how things currently operate today. When you look at the Bible, you wouldn't expect to find any females leading anything if that wasn't what was supposed to be taking place, because it was already, for lack of better words, a shock factor that you had so many women in leadership positions to begin with in the Old and New Testament. That's already a shock factor. Um, And people say, well, you know, Deborah, yeah, I mean, if there were enough men, you know, standing up, she wouldn't have had to do that. To me, that's a disrespect to women. It really is, because what you're saying is, well, if there had been a good man around to do it, God wouldn't have had to, to, to scrape the bottom of the barrel and make an exception for Deborah. <laughs> um, I, I, and, and, and I know, and let me say this, and, and, and look. Well, when you put it that way, I mean, come and, on. <laughs> and, 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 and I know Wes didn't mean it that way, so I'm not, actually, I'm not talking about Wes. I'm talking about, though, people who oftentimes say that without, and, and people don't even realize it. They don't mean that, but that's the implication because- well, I'm laughing because I, we, that wasn't the point Wes was making, and that's not where he's coming from at all. But dude, I have heard, and I'm laughing because I have heard that line of reasoning used by someone who- is misogynistic for someone who does not regard women as being right. able to men yeah. in any stretch of the imagination. So I'm laughing because I'm like, oh brother, I've heard that before. <laughs> well, and it is, and it's 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 almost it, it's not almost it is demeaning, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to say these things are exceptions. You know that my wife and I we're we're owners of a business, and she's actually the owner. It's a it's a woman owned business, and it would be like me saying, well, you know. Usually I'm the one who does all the work, but every now and then the exception is Bethany does, you know, some work too. That that's the exception. I don't think anybody would take that as a compliment to Bethany. I don't think anybody would take that as a good thing. Because number one, that's not true. She's the one who does all the work anyway. In, in reality, she's the one. It's the, it's the <laughs> exception when I do something good. But but the point is, is that to try and take these examples and make them exceptions minimizes to try to excuse them away instead of actually engaging with them and saying, well, yeah, why is that? Like, I don't, I don't see Miriam being the exception. Like, I don't see that. I mean, there, there could have been a, a whole host of folks to lead, but, but that's not what happened. There were women. And here's why we don't see more women. We don't see more women because it's a patriarchal society. The fact that we read about any women at all is huge. It's massive that we see that. It's not an exception. This is, this is, if anything, this shows in the Old and New Testament how God valued co-leadership and co-authority when it came to worship and leading God's people. God didn't have classes broken up for this is the man's class and this is the women's class and, and, and all these types of things, or this is the women's ministry. I'm not saying those things are intrinsically bad. Don't get me wrong. But when we literally take the body of Christ and say, we're going to go to spiritual warfare, but let's first cut half of our body off. It's it literally looking back now. I, I, there's so many things I missed. I missed because of, of my interpretation of that. But anyway, so my point is that, uh, and by the way, a lot of people say, well, Jesus didn't have women disciples. And we, as we talked with Linda, he did. They're just never talked about in Christian circles, even though the Bible talks about them. We don't because that's not been our focus. Um, and by the way, what do you think is going to happen 
when you have males leading the church, do you think they're going to emphasize the importance of women leadership? <laughs> Not <laughs> you know, are, necessarily. Are, are they going to bring these things up? Perhaps sometimes, but when we've been trained that way, we're not going to see those things because we're not looking for them. And when we do find them, they're an exception. They're not brought into the conversation. They're, well, you know what? God didn't have female leaders. Well, what about all these verses? Oh, well, yeah. Well, those are exceptions. We don't really have to deal with those. So I, I do think that your point is is very strong, and it is one that had went unnoticed in my study for many, many years. And so when we're picking on we're picking on ourselves here, folks, because I mean this is something that that we ourselves have learned a lot and have changed on too. But as you as you pointed out, going back to First Corinthians fourteen, what is Paul condemning here, or what is Paul restricting here? So I think when you look at the context, Paul silences the disorderly talk for three different groups. Not just the women, but first of all, the tongue speakers, then the prophets, then these specific women in context. So the same imperative Greek verb for be silent is actually used for each of these three groups of people. So if we think that, that being silent for women means that they cannot lead or can't talk in the assembly, prophets couldn't and tongue speakers couldn't, which would make for a very, very boring assembly because the assemblies <laughs> were tongue speakers and prophets. So if we're going to say that tongue speakers and prophets were told to be silent, but that meant they could still speak, it was just certain limitations that they had when they had to be silent, then we would have to say the same thing for women. It wasn't you had to be silent all times, every time. It's within certain context. So when would those contexts be? Well, a tongue speaker, whether a male or female, is to be silent and stop speaking in tongues if there is no one to interpret. 1 Corinthians 14, 28 says that. A prophet, male or female, is to be silent and start uh, stop prophesying if someone else receives a revelation. Now, what all of that means exactly, once again, a different topic for another time. But that is when a prophet was to be silent, 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Same, by the way, this is the same Greek word for silent in all these contexts here, including this one. Women are to be silent, stop asking questions. If there is anything they want to learn, they should keep their questions for home. Now, most scholars who have studied this believe that these questions uh, were probably or possibly directed to the men and women prophesying. And prophecy was so that everyone could learn and be encouraged. And that there could have been these women here within context who were apparently interrupting that. And so it wasn't just all women. It was married women who would have had the opportunity to later go home and have this conversation with their husband. Because the question is, well, what happens if you don't have a husband? Who are you going to ask? You going to ask a, a, another, you know, one of your friends' husbands? The text doesn't say that. It says, ask your husband. Intrinsically, that means that this seems to not be talking about all women, but it is talking about married women. That's kind of the first qualification here is this seems to be talking about married women. And I think a specific type of married women who are specifically disrupting when these prophets are prophesying. The point is, all these groups of people need to hold their tongues and stop speaking in these situations. But nobody would argue that 1 Corinthians 14 is about silencing tongue speakers all the time in every church or silencing prophets all the time or every church or every prophet or every tongue speaker. But yet we come to 1 Corinthians 14, 33 and 34 and say, this same word that's used to talk about tongue speakers and prophets that's used for women does mean all women for all time in every situation. And once again, that's a huge inconsistency. So I think this is about specific tongue speakers, specific prophets, and specific married women in certain situations under consideration. 
So 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40, which contains, by the way, verses 34 and 35, is bookended by verses that show the issue in Corinth was unruly, unedifying speech. And in these bookended verses, Paul encourages edifying and gifted speech, and he encourages orderly participation in church meetings regardless of gender. And that's why you have the verse there in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, that book in verse, that, that last one that says all things should be done decently and in order. Well, to me, it's, it's, it's really, this is one of those topics that's way more complex than it should be. Because what it really boils down to is what is your interpretive choice in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35? What is your interpretive choice? Are you interpreting everything in Scripture that we see, the trajectory of Scripture and all that we see? Uh, if, if we take it in conjunction with what we see in Jesus' ministry and the inclusion of women there, we take it in conjunction with what we see in Pentecost with sons and daughters prophesying, if we take that in conjunction with Philip's daughters and all the prophetesses of the Old Testament, the prophetesses of the New Testament that are mentioned, if we take it in conjunction with Paul's valediction in Romans 16, where he mentions nine women by name as fellow laborers, that word signifies that they were involved in the same work and did the same job that Paul himself did. And one of them, Junia, even being mentioned as an apostle with the implication that women were praying and prophesying in the assembly in 1 Corinthians 11, to read the entirety of Scripture through the lens of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35 in regards to women roles in public worship, the question is, is why are you interpreting and using that strategy and in interpretation? Why are you making the choice to interpret it this way? So if, if one looks at the entirety of the body of Scripture, if one does a deep dive into this, the question is, is why are you prohibiting women from full participation in worship? Well, because 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 says women are to be silent in the church. Okay, why are you applying it that way in view of all these other things? That's really what the question comes down to. And I think it gets back to what you mentioned earlier. It's because that's what we're already doing. It's what we've always done. It's what I have always done. And... It's this is just what we do and how I understand it. This is how daddy understood it. This is how grandpappy understood it. This is how my mama understood it. So this is how I understand it, too. I really do believe that when presented with this information, that's why people still hold on to that, because it's their tradition and because they don't want by implication to make daddy wrong. They don't want to make grandpa a great preacher, man. And I don't doubt that someone's grandpa out there who held this position was a great preacher and did a lot of good for the cause of Christ. I don't doubt that that's the case at all. But I really believe that it boils down to an interpretive choice based on what's comfortable for the individual. It's more comfortable to believe what I've always believed and to apply this in the manner that I've always applied it. And that's why I will choose to ignore or write off or explain away all these other passages. Because, brother, I've been accused of, well, you're just trying to explain away 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. And I'm like, dude, you're explaining away Miriam and Hulda and Deborah and, and all these other women of faith. You're explaining away Junia. You're explaining away Priscilla. You're explaining away... Uh, Philip's daughters, you're explaining away 1 Corinthians 11, you're explaining away Pentecost, you're explaining away Joel's prophecy, you're explaining away way more than I am, 
whenever I'm simply trying to find the appropriate context and application of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, because to take it and make a blanket assessment is to create far more contradiction and tension within Scripture than what it does to put it in its proper context and realize that this has to do with an unruly cohort of people that needed to be silent because they're disrupting everybody else. Yeah, amen, brother. Come now while we stand and sing, man. Well, we can't stand and sing yet. No, no, we can't stand and sing yet. We've got one more passage we got. Well, and and yeah, everything that you just said, I I agree a hundred and ten percent. And I think a lot of this too falls on you were talking about picking and choosing and and explaining away and how 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 it's not just us trying to contextualize and what may seem like explain away passages, every side is doing that to some extent, because as I just, as you pointed out, what are you going to do with all of those verses? And if you attend a church where women sing, well, how are you going to harmonize that when Paul says that women aren't, aren't need to, they need to be silent. Last I heard women singing, that's not a very silent thing. Men singing is not, you know what I'm saying? So, and and by the way, that's (laughs) not saying that in an ugly way at all. What I'm saying is, is that women singing, that's, that's speaking. And Paul even says speaking to one another in Psalms and spiritual songs. And so these things are already being explained away, right? These things are already being explained away. Instead of trying to engage this text, we're fine explaining away Ephesians 5. Nine. Oh, yeah, sure. Women can sing. Well, why can't women, you know, why, why can't women preach? Well, because Paul says they can't talk. Well, why can women sing? Um, because they're already, they're, 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 they're already doing that, man. You know, it's like because, you know, it's, it's Paul, didn't, Paul didn't, by the way, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul didn't say women couldn't preach. Paul said women couldn't speak. Period. So, so, so be silent, be silent, be silent. If be silent allows for singing, then be silent can allow for any other form of teaching. And when we understand it within its proper context of what Paul is limiting. Yeah. If being silent means be silent and that includes singing, then be silent does not mean be silent. If it includes singing, it can't, it absolutely cannot. But some something else, and we're about to get to First Timothy two here, which is that that uh, kind of heavy hitter verse that I used to use, and I know you used to use, and many people use. And we're going to delve into that. And by the way, we're starting to go longer on our podcast because the people who wanted us to go slower, we found out they're not listening anyway. And the ones who are tell us to go <laughs> tell us to go longer. So we're going to listen to the ones who are listening to our podcast. So Absolutely. Let, it, let us know if you're you. cool with that. Okay. Well, so. Oh, well, with first Timothy two, you know, well, that's- but before we get there though, hold on. I wanted to, if you're cool, I wanted to make one more point. Get it, brother. Get after it. So this is something that I think is important because, um, Linda, when we were talking about qualifications of elders and those types of things, um, the qualifications, you know, it starts out if a man desires and husband of one wife and those types of things. And it's very gender specific. No doubt about that. I don't think you need, I don't know of anybody who would disagree with that within the context. The point Linda made, which I don't, I wish she would have spent more time doing. Um, in fact, later afterwards, Lee, I haven't even told you that. She said she would like to come back on the program and deal specifically with that because she said that she, uh, we, you know, was we had already been talking a while when we got to that point. I think, and it was, it was to me, I understood what she was saying, 
But I think for most the most part, people who are studying this, that's not going to be a satisfactory answer. I think I told her that on the podcast. I'm like, look, I understand what you're saying, but people aren't going to be satisfied with this. And I think it's important. I wanted to just bring up a couple of things real quick on that before we get into 1 Timothy 2, because I want to kind of end on 1 Timothy 2. You bet. But with the qualifications of elders, I do believe women can be shepherds. I do believe women can be pastors. And people say, well, how do you harmonize that with what Paul said is the qualifications? Well, I harmonize that in the same way that I believe that a woman could look upon a man to lust. And you may be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? (laughs) I get what you're saying. Go with it, though. I like it. So in the Bible, we have to realize this was a patriarchal age, patriarchal time. And as I said before, that's why... I don't think women leading should be viewed as exceptions. Now, it was exceptional for that point in time, but I think as far as God's concerned, that was something that God put in there and God allowed, and we see Christian leaders, uh, women leaders, because God's ultimate design is equality among male and female in leadership. I believe that. doesn't mean they don't have different roles or different talents within that leadership, but to say that women can't hold a certain role in the in it is as far as what a man can simply because men are somehow over women i think is is an unbiblical concept but here's here's why we don't see that as much in the bible why don't we not see more female leaders well as i mentioned before it was a patriarchal society that's you didn't have as many educated females you didn't have as many educated women and even the ones who oftentimes are mentioned especially those who traveled with jesus some of those perhaps were more educated. Some of the leaders would have been more educated. We see Lydia. She was probably more wealthy. She was a seller of purple, had her own home. Some of these women who were disciples of Jesus, um, who, who traveled with him, they were the ones financially supporting him. So all for all indication, it appears that, yes, it was exceptions, but it wasn't an exception for God's rule. It was an exception for that place and time. Um, a, a good parallel, if I may, when you think of uh, what has happened in America with racism, and, and you think back over the, the past 100 years, 200 years, whatever it may be, you, you look at a time where there were very few black people, male or female, who had a lot of college education. And we can look back and state that as a fact, but should we draw from that that black people are not smart? <laughs> should we draw from the fact that, oh, well, because looking back at that time, black people must have just not been smart because there weren't very many of them who, who had education. We shouldn't look at it that way. We should realize that here's why there were opportunities culturally that were not afforded to them that were afforded to white people. It has nothing to do with equality of, or, or it has nothing to do with whether or not, um, you know, black people are as smart as white people. Of course they are. They didn't have the same opportunities. And so I like to parallel as context culturally something we can understand to, to today where when we look back and we look at women and say, well, hey, you know, women today are just as smart as educated as men. Well, you know, if God wanted to use them in the Bible more, he would have. It was a different place in time. Women would have not been as educated. They would have not had the same opportunities. And that's not God's will. That was reality. That's just the way things were. But when women begin to have those opportunities and when women do now have those opportunities, then for us to try to go back in the archaic time and say, well, this is the examples we have in Scripture, to me, is to do a complete disservice and injustice to God, to Jesus, to the kingdom, to the principal narrative arc of we're all one in the kingdom of God, to do injustice to the examples we do have that were not exceptions, 
but more pointed the way that this is what really should be. Women should have these opportunities. So when it comes, I say all that to say, getting back to my example of what about qualifications of elders and deacons and things of that nature. In the Bible, there is a lot of times what is called uh, contextual assumptions embedded into the text. And the and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, it's descriptive. When Jesus said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust, he's committed to adultery with her already in his heart. There is no text that says if a woman looks upon a man to lust, she has committed adultery with him in her heart. Do I assume from that then that Jesus was excluding females from being able to lust at males? Should I say, well, you know what? My goodness, if a woman wants to look at a male to lust all day long, she can because Jesus only said it's a sin for a male to do it. Now, how ridiculous is that? I don't know anybody who doesn't apply that across the board, but because 1 Timothy 3 talks about gender-specific terms. We assume that that's a rule in, in prescriptive instead of contextually embedded descriptive terms. So as Linda pointed out, most women during that time would have not been. Because keep in mind, many of the prophets, that was endowed as a spiritual miraculous gift. You didn't have to be educated. You didn't have to have that form of education. If, if, if you were led by the Holy Spirit, if you were miraculously given that, you could have been very highly uneducated, but have been able to prophesy because now you were endowed with that miraculous ability. But when it came to the elders and deacons, there was no miraculous ability attached to that based upon everything I understand within context. And so the qualifications would have been assumed, well, this would have probably had to be a male. It would have naturally been a male. Why? Because most of your women wouldn't have been able to read and write, and very few males would have been able to read and write of the ones who were there to begin with. And so naturally, I think when it goes to choosing your leaders, it would have fallen to the males, not because the males are over the females in any way, but because contextually the males would have been the ones at that time to have had those opportunities. But that didn't mean that if a woman would have been qualified, or that doesn't mean later on that a woman couldn't assume those leadership positions. I think that's spot on. And I really like the point that you made about likening it to the, to the role of black people in cultural history and in academia and in and in various achievements and what have you, because if, if you take a look, the homeschool community that, that we're involved with, one of the things that we study is astronomers. And the group that I work with in the eighth grade, we look at different astronomers and of the 15 different astronomers, notable astronomers that we look at, two of them are black. Um, one of them is Henrietta Swan Levitt, who uh, or not. No, wait, that's not right. And now I can't remember her name. It was not Levitt. It was the one that we studied before her, but I wish I could remember her name. Maria. Yes. Maria Mitchell is her name. She discovered a comet that still bears her name. And we also studied Benjamin Banneker, who was a black man. He was also a, uh, um, what's the word land surveyor. He actually helped survey the boundaries of Washington, DC. Does that mean that black people just weren't capable of being or weren't qualified to serve as or be astronomers or land surveyors or whatever else? Not at all. It just means at that point in time, they weren't able to do so because of the cultural climate that existed. And I think that's a point that can't be missed. Yeah. But and well, and I was, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I was, I was just going to go ahead and, and just kind of recap a little bit of first Corinthians 14 and get into first Timothy two. Well, well, just one more point, because I think going along with what we're saying here, because it's important, this point's really important, and it's lost on a lot of people, because they look at the New Testament, especially the epistles, 
And they try to go to interpret it as, as direct universal law. And I, I just don't believe that's what it is. Rather, I believe that the New Testament and the epistles, they provide us with an instructive and inspired glimpse into how the teachings of Jesus were lived out by real people in real communities facing real challenges who were limited within their own cult- culture and context. And so I don't think it's the details found in the letters that we should seek to imitate, but I believe it's the attitudes. And, you know, it was interesting to me that when you actually look at the New Testament, I want to make this point clear too, because I've, I've had um, some conversations about this and Wes's lessons on complementarianism, I do not think represent historically the complementarian view. Um, I would put him in, in more of a soft complementarian position because when when you look at the way that people have interpreted and read scripture, specifically the passages that talk about women and wives and husbands, those have been weaponized. And people oftentimes say, well, you know, they really shouldn't have been weaponized. That was that was human's fault. I, I push back on that a little bit, because if you're going to passages to be your guide is universal law. And, and I know of women, a lot of women who have been told by their husbands, look, the Bible says that you have to obey me. And we can make the argument all day long. Well, that's a bad husband. The husband shouldn't act that way. But even Peter himself says, if you're married to an unbeliever, you need to be obedient to that unbeliever. And he uses Abraham and Sarah when Sarah called Abraham Lord and blindly followed Abraham wherever he wanted her to go. And so I think that if the position is, well, you know, that's really not the type of submission that a woman must have to a man. I I, I think that you're abandoning the true complementary position, which I think should be abandoned to begin with, just like I think the idea of slavery should be abandoned. I think that there was a trajectory in scripture where things were getting better among males and females and slaves and free and uh, Jew and Gentile. But I don't think that things were by any means perfected within the letters of the New Testament at all. And I think that there is this trajectory that is that was set forth that needs to continue to progress throughout time. As we learn, as we grow, as we show mercy and grace toward one another, as we realize that we are God's image, image bearers. But for years, people have used slavery texts to justify slavery, and people have used those texts about women and wives submitting to their husbands and how women are to be homemakers. And I found it ironic that Wes would say a woman doesn't have to be a homemaker, that that's culturally situated, but that a woman can't speak or lead in worship. Because I found that just ironic that if you're going to take the position that the New Testament is where we get our direct instruction from, and that Paul tells women that they're to be homemakers and that they're to submit and all these different things. If you don't take that and say, this is what you have to do, then I don't understand why we would have to go to 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 and say, no, 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 but you have to do these things. I think we have to recognize either the New Testament is a law book and it is something that is universal and we're having to try to apply it directly to our lives or that the New Testament is more examples of how early Christians understood how they were trying to apply Christ-like principles, and they did the best they could even though they were still falling short, and that we learn the attitudes behind that, and we try to continually improve on those. Well, it seems to be so much more helpful to view the Bible, and especially the New Testament, in terms of a response to the gospel call within a particular context, culturally speaking. And, And 
whenever we we take it as that, well, a lot of these issues and these tensions and these contradictions even, they tend to to fade away when we understand the context and we look at the scripture in that sense. Well, yeah, the Bible is, and I still believe that the Bible does contain God's will revealed to mankind. And I do believe that that will revealed to mankind is perfect. I do. I really do believe that. But I think that if we take a perspicuous view of scripture and we say that it's absolutely crystal clear in everything that it asserts and everything that it contains and everything that it communicates, and that it is absolutely God's revealed will, and now we need to take it and follow it absolutely specifically and strictly and precisely to the letter, well, now we have some problems that have to be resolved. But whenever we view it in the same terms that you just mentioned, those problems aren't problems anymore. Those problems don't even exist anymore. Yeah. No, you're right. And there's a lot more that could be said on this, but let's go ahead and jump now because I think we've we've covered those topics pretty well, or at least given our we, thoughts on I mean, as well as we can in almost and by, two and by the way, people want to know why we don't give our opinions when we have a guest on because we've this already is gone. Why? <laughs> you know, let's say we allow our guests an hour. We would already be at three hours at this point. So that's why we want to give them a time to talk and then we we talk ourselves. So Lee, let's go to First Timothy two because to me this was kind of the the big passage. This was yes. the home run hitter for me when I used to talk about this. And so what are your thoughts on how this passage has been used and how you have personally changed on this passage? Well, in comparison to 1 Corinthians 14, it's pretty easy to see the context of 1 Corinthians 14 whenever you look at 1 Corinthians 14 in and of itself. It's a lot harder to derive the context of 1 Timothy 2 by just examining the context of First Timothy. It's it's not as crystal clear. You have First Corinthians eleven that casts light on First Corinthians fourteen. You have Paul's admonition about prophecy and how prophecy works and when prophecy is you enumerated extremely well in that in that portion of this episode. All of that casts a light on how First Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 is to be applied. First Timothy is a little more difficult to make that case without doing more digging into the context of First Timothy. Now, on a cursory reading, at least at this point, it seems clear that Paul is referencing a specific type of woman that is to be silenced and that is not to usurp authority over a man. But like you, I made that a blanket global application. So the issue is, and we just spent uh, about six or seven minutes talking about cultural context and that how co- how that has colored the the discussion of the eldership and how it should color that discussion context plays a role here too culture plays a role here too and whenever we take a look at first timothy 2 i'm just going to go ahead and read this and and jump over here in first timothy 2 well let me get to it i'm in the wrong place i'm sorry He says, beginning in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
Now, like you said, man, if you're going to take a position that silences women, this is a home run. Like yeah. this is, you can't do any better than this. And it seems crystal clear. Well, why are you trying to explain away first Timothy two? You just don't want to do what the Bible says. I mean, I can hear it now. Those are the very words that, that I used to say, but the issue is, is that whenever we look at verses, what is it? Eight through 10, we largely ascribe a cultural context to those verses. And I know that there are groups that don't. Growing up Pentecostal, you definitely see that in various holiness standards. There are groups that do not braid hair. There are groups that do not wear gold or silver or jewelry or necklaces or earrings or anything else. There are groups that wear very plain clothes. They dress in a way that's not flashy, that doesn't draw attention to themselves. And I say that in, in air quotes, but in dressing that way, they do draw attention to themselves because it is in and of itself countercultural. But in general, in most of Christendom, even within fundamentalist groups, these verses are written off as cultural. They're described as cultural. Women still braid their hair. Women still wear a gold wedding band. Women still have clothes that may be more expensive than other clothes, at least relative to their themselves and what they have in their own wardrobe. Well, Paul's argument if we take that and we apply that culturally and we apply it in a global sense, this idea, well, since Adam was formed first, is it wrong for women to wear braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire? No one argues that at all. No one says, well, because of creation and because of the created order and because this admonition goes all the way back to the garden and to the very beginning, we don't need to wear braided hair. Eve was there in the garden. She didn't braid her hair. And sister, you don't need to braid it either. We don't make that mm, argument. I don't I don't read gold and pearls in Genesis, so there you nah, go. I don't read it either. All that gold's still in the ground, baby. <laughs> but the point is, is that we culturally apply this, but whenever we get to verses 11 and 12, we don't. We say that a woman is to be silent and in all subjection to the man, that she's to learn in silence. She's not permitted to speak. She's not permitted to have authority over a man. And that word authority, and I don't want to get too far into this because I'm not a Greek expert. I have made a decision that I'm going to try to learn Greek, but we'll see what happens. It may not work. It may work out. It may not. I tend to have an obsessive personality, so maybe it'll go my way. Who knows? But that word for authority or to assert authority comes from a word authenton, and it's not found anywhere else in the scripture. It means to domineer over someone. It means to completely subjugate and dominate somebody. And in other ways that that word is used, it means a taskmaster overseeing a slave. It means someone being cruel towards someone else. It means someone who is domineering and is completely dominating their will over the will of someone else. And I would argue that that's not a position that even a Christian ought to have, whether they're a man or a woman, period, to begin with. But in understanding 1 Timothy 2, we understand that this idea of men praying in every, pr every place, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, or gold or pearls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We understand that that's culturally contextual, that there's a cultural context to play there. And it's my position at this point that there is a cultural position or a cultural context in play with Paul's admonition for women to remain silent. So we need to understand something about the context of, of Timothy, of Paul's pastoral epistle to Timothy. So the first question is, is who is Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to Timothy. The book bears his name. Well, then the next question is, is where is Timothy at this point in time? 
Timothy's working in Ephesus. Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to work with the church in Ephesus. So where is Ephesus? What's the deal with Ephesus? Within Ephesus, you find the temple of Artemis. Artemis, the worship of Artemis, or Diana as she was referred to, was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of wild animals, the goddess of vegetation. She was the goddess of chastity and childbirth. And with the Romans, her name was Diana, but her Greek name was Artemis. She was, in Greek mythology, the daughter of Zeus and Leto. She was the twin sister of Apollo. And she was the preeminent goddess, the deity of Ephesus. So the people that Timothy and that previously Paul had brought the gospel to in Ephesus were worshipers of Artemis. They were worshipers of Diana. And we read about this taking place, or we read about some more of this context in Acts 19, and we'll get there in a minute. A lot of what I'm about to speak and a lot of what I'm about to share has come from the work of Dr. Dallas Burdett. Now, Dr. Dallas Burdett is an interesting cat, and we're hoping to have him on the podcast in the future. We got to get him some equipment so we can hear what he's saying, but we hope to have him on as a guest. But he is a former preacher of the One Cup group that I came from. He has a doctorate in ministry, and he has also taught biblical Greek and Hebrew at the graduate level. He taught it for years. So I'm not a Greek scholar, but Dallas Burdett is. Um, He's written extensively on this topic. We'll have a link to his work in the show notes. And his work on women's roles in worship dive deep into the context of 1 Timothy 2. And the key to understanding what Paul's getting at and the key to understanding this context is understanding what happening or what is happening in Ephesus. So Timothy's in Ephesus. Paul had previously stayed in Ephesus, and you can read about this in Acts 19. We're not going to go over there and read it. I'll just recap. Paul gets to Ephesus. He meets some brethren who have not been baptized in the name of Jesus. They've been baptized under John's baptism. So Paul baptizes them and the church is established there in Ephesus. Paul then goes to the synagogue and he preaches in the synagogue for three months. But because there are people denigrating Christianity, there are people denigrating the message that he brings, he leaves. He goes to the school of Tyrannus and he rents that and he continues to teach for the next two years. Well, there's a lot of headway made for the gospel. There's a lot of miracles that are performed at Paul's hands. The Bible says even handkerchiefs and pieces of cloth that he touched, if people touched them, they were healed from their maladies and their infirmities. And I'm here to tell you that right there will preach. That's going to get people's attention. And over time, the church grows and grows and grows until as a measure of repentance, these people that have lived in Ephesus, that have worshiped Diana, that have worshiped Artemis for their entire lives, they take their books of magic and divination and they burn them. That's going to be incredibly important in just a little while. The value of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. There's no small amount that's, that's burned there. This leads to a riot. Demetrius the silversmith says, hey guys, this guy's cutting into our profits here. We need to drive him out. There's this huge riot. On and on it goes. It's a really interesting story to read there. But this idea about the followers of Artemis burning their magic books is huge. So keep that in mind, keep your finger on that, and let's move on. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is talking about, in giving Timothy instructions, what he needs to do with widows indeed. He classifies what a widow indeed is. He also talks about the younger women who may be widows or who are single. 
And he says in verse 11, refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion to slander, for this is important, for some have already strayed after Satan. Now, in all of this, people are probably wondering, what in the world are you talking about? Like, like where are you going with this? Well, we're about to bring it all together, because this, whenever I read this, it blew my mind. It threw me for a loop. I've checked into some of what Dallas has said in as far as I can, but I haven't found anything that that speaks to this at the level of detail and at the level of depth that he has. And it's incredibly compelling. So this word in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 5, where he talks about these young women are gossips and busybodies, they're saying what they should not. Well, what is it that they're saying? The word gossip and busybody, or that word busybody specifically, is the key to understanding what Paul's getting at. Now, in our modern context, and this gets back to what you were saying earlier, Kevin, whenever we look at things, we tend to look at things as we are now, and we don't look at it in its ancient context. When we think of a term busybody, we're thinking of that nosy neighbor, like the show Bewitched, that that neighbor. I can't remember her name, but she was always spying on him. She was always sticking her nose where it didn't belong. When we think of someone as a busybody, that's what we think about. And over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I believe it is, and in verse 11, that word is used in that context, talking about these lazy people that refuse to work. Instead, they're idle, they're going about, they're being busybodies. Well, here's the thing. The word Paul uses here in his letter to Timothy versus the word Paul uses um, in that letter to the church of Thessalonica, they're two different words. They have Mm -hmm. the same root, but they're two different words. Paul isn't talking about someone sticking their nose where it doesn't belong in Timothy's letter. He is in Thessalonians, but he's not in Timothy. That word busybody comes from the Greek word perirgos, and I can't even say that one. You couldn't say the word earlier. I can't say this one. I don't even try. I don't even try. Well, it comes from (laughs) a word that means magic and black arts. They're going around talking about old wives tales. And when we think about an old wives tale, that's like, you know, put a potato in your sock and put it over your foot. If you've got phlegm and the potato will, you know, draw the phlegm out of your chest or, you know, in, in South Korea, an old wives tale is, is you don't sleep with a fan on. If you do, that fan will steal your soul. So you don't, you don't have fans in bedrooms in South Korea. It's an old wives tale. That's what we think of. Old wives' tales had a completely different context within the ancient Near East, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the point, this word busybodies means those who practice magic and black arts. What is it these women are saying that they should not say? They've been straying after Satan. They're speaking these old wives' tales about Artemis. These are worshipers of Diana of of Ephesus. These are worshipers of this false pagan god that are intermingling this message of paganism with that of Christianity. They don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know the context of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They're going about as busybodies preaching and practicing black magic. Now, how do we know that's the case? Because if we go back to Acts 19, 
And we look at these magic books that these women took, or rather that these people took and burned. You know what word is used to describe these magic books? Same per- one. Periergos, that very same word. So this is what Dr. Burdett has to say. In his appeal to the church, Paul mentioned Euodia, Syntyche, Clement, and all of the other co-workers with him in the proclamation of the gospel. Remember, Paul was in prison in Rome and the two women were in Philippi. Paul did not have reference to these two women cooking his meals and washing his clothes. Just a perusal of 1 and 2 Timothy reveals the tension that Paul had to deal with, heretical teaching. In 1 Timothy 1 and 2, he called attention to the myths... And in chapter 4 and verse 7, he referred to these myths as old wives' tales. In 5 and 13, he drew attention to the practice of black magic and the telling of nonsensical stories, which stories were the old womanish fables and myths about their gods and goddesses in chapter 4 and verse 7. In Paul's second epistle to Timothy, he told them that these women were always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, 2 Timothy 3 and 7. Dr. Burdett goes on to say, these women did not understand the gospel. See 1 Timothy 2 and 5 and 3 and 16. They were heavily influenced by teachers, men who had infiltrated the Christian community. In his second epistle, he issued an injunction against individuals who were advancing a form of Gnosticism, black magic, and the adherence to other gods and goddesses. The King James translates the Greek text as faithful men in 2 Timothy 2 too. On the other hand, the NIV is the more accurate according to the Greek text. And if Dr. Burdett says that it's more accurate, I believe him. He taught Greek for a decade or maybe even more. The NIV is more accurate according to the Greek text. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul did not use the Greek word that identifies only the male, but rather he employed a word that includes both men and women. In 1 Timothy, he referred to these individuals as certain persons according to the Greek text. In this regard, Paul told Timothy they will turn their ears away from the tooth to the truth and turn aside to myths. So with all that in mind, what are we seeing here? Whenever Paul says that women are to be in silence, whenever he says that, oh, how does he put it? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Paul seems to only be addressing certain women, not all women. He's addressing a specific type of woman. He's addressing a busybody, which isn't someone who's just sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. He's addressing someone who is still engaged in the practice of those black arts and that black magic, who is still beholden to the goddess Artemis and Diana. Once again, the context indicates that Paul is not shutting the mouths of women for all time and in all places where the saints assemble, but rather he's appealing to Timothy to drastically and strongly oppose the spreading of old wives' tales, black magic, and paganism within the church. Paul is addressing specific women, maybe domineering women who used to be temple servants of Diana, because within the temple of Artemis, women were the ones who ran the show. Some men weren't even allowed to participate. They had to be silent in the temple, you might say. These two verses don't refer to all Christian women for all time, only specific women 
And Paul is correcting these women. They need to learn. And as a side note, this statement, they'll be saved in childbirth. If we go all the way back, just like Paul did to the early story in Genesis, and we see the statement to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, that's something that Jews took seriously. In saying that women will be saved in childbirth, I personally believe that this is a reference to that original order that God gave to mankind to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth and to do so through childbirth. That's how they would do it. They would go out, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth through bearing offspring. And in this sense, the Apostle Paul is reclaiming that from Diana and that pagan worship. Now, there's a whole lot more I could say about it, but I've gone on a on a kind of a rant for the last 15, 20 minutes on that. There's a whole lot more to this story than what I've even touched on. This just scratches the surface, and I'll have a link to Dr. Burdett's work. It's all available for free on his website to those who are interested, so you can download that as well. But I, I think one of the things that we take away as we wrap this up is just what you said earlier, man. These epistles were not meant to be interpreted or function and applied as a universal law applicable in all places and all time. The attitudes behind it are what should prevail whenever we study it. They give us an inspired glimpse into the mindset of one who is inspired, of one who is directed by God to think and behave a certain way. And that's going to be different depending on the cultural context and the cultural climate that we find ourselves in. And that's something that can't be understated. No, the context is key, and we say that all the time. And that's not to to diminish anyone who disagrees with this interpretation, that they're not paying attention to context. But I do think that most... Most Christians, including myself, I would even put myself in this category, we tend to ignore the context when we're when we already have our belief, when we're already pre-committed to a belief. And it's so easy just to not look deep at the context. And why would we? When we already have our position and it fits what we're currently doing, most of us are not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we're wrong. We want to we we're already assuming we're right. <laughs> and so it it usually takes inconsistencies, it takes some experiences, it takes uh within our own mind dealing with some realities that we can no longer ignore. And I love how you brought up the fact of women wearing their hair braided or women wearing gold and pearls and costly clothing. Nobody says, well, because of the creation, this is why it's wrong for a woman to do that. I'm, well, I say nobody says that. As you pointed out, there are some in the Pentecostal movement, but by and large in evangelical circles and even historically, there have not been, the majority of Christians have not argued that a woman must uh, abstain from braided hair, gold, and pearls, and costly clothing. They, they would say that's reserved for that specific context. And to, to try to say, well, that is cultural, but this isn't cultural, that latter part of women remaining silent, it just shows you how we pick and choose what parts we're wanting to take as applicable for us today and what parts we want to stay, we, we want stayed in culture. And, you know, that goes back to what I was saying with the passages that do speak about women uh, in, in some of these gender-specific roles of, okay, women, you must be homemakers. Women, you must call your husband Lord, or at least that's the example that's given. You need to obey 
your husband in all things, just as the church is to obey Christ. And we wonder, well, how could someone uh, ever mistreat their wife? Well, if you've got a man who's a non-believer and he knows that the Bible tells his wife, who is a believer, that she has to obey her 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 husband even if he's non-believer, well, yeah, there's going to be people who take advantage of that. And so to believe that we should apply that today and not realize that that was at a specific time and a specific culture then I think we're going to just continue to do ourselves an injustice of what the purpose of the Bible is and how it behaves. Because the bottom line is nobody follows the Bible exactly the way it's written. Nobody, not a single person literally follows the Bible the way it's written. Everyone follows the Bible the way that they think it should be written or the way that they think it should be interpreted. Excuse me, not the way it's written, but the way that they believe it should be interpreted. What that means is, is that everyone is picking and choosing. The question is, what is winning out and why is it winning out? And are we being consistent with our approach to how we're using the Bible? And, you know, just just to your point about the word authority, too, I just want to make a quick mention of that because that word is, is a very special word. It's not your typical word for authority that when you think about someone being in subordination, it's a completely different word. And it can even have the idea of harming or even possibly killing an individual. And Lee, I don't I don't know if you had ever heard this before, but I had never put this together until now. When I was studying this several years ago, I never heard anyone go to the, quite the extent that you had brought up through uh, what, what Dr. Dallas had said. But they had brought up how within context, there were these women who had served uh, the goddess Diana, and they were still heavily influenced, even though they had converted to Christianity. But they were very, not just domineering, but to the point of practicing black magic, or at least practicing certain behaviors to where they would uh, were actually cursing individuals, trying to, trying to even possibly harm and kill uh, others. And so Paul's trying to put a stop to that, which is way different than what we're talking about today. But when we're expecting the Bible to speak to our context, instead of reading the Bible and allowing it to speak to its immediate context, the, the actual original context of the Bible sometimes sounds crazy because it's different than what we're expecting it to be, even though it's a it's a more pure reading of the text. Well, and I think this is a good point to bring this up. And whenever we talk about context, one of the statements that's been made to me by one of my dear friends, and if you're listening, you know who you are and you know I love you to death and I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here, but they have a real problem with this idea of having to establish context to understand things because they're saying, well, with this, you can make it mean whatever you want. And to me, that's that's such a crazy thing to say because this idea, well, you know, you're just saying you have to have context and this is, well, you know, why can't you say, well, this was just culturally situated then and this is what they thought. So that's what, they, no, establishing context means we try to understand as best we can what the author was trying to say, the point that the author was trying to make, why they were saying what they said and how the readers and recipients would have received it and how they would have applied it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that how they would have received it and applied it is how we will receive it and apply it in our modern culture, in our modern time. The attitude is transcendent. The attitude will transcend time and place and locality and culture. Love transcends everything. 
And kindness transcends everything. The fruits of the spirit are not culturally situated. These are things that, that manifest themselves no matter who you are, no matter where you are, and no matter what time you live in. Will the specifics of what that looks like change? Of course it will. But whenever we think in terms and we think of a term that's this specific as it relates to women's roles in the church, I, I think one of the points that Dr. that Dr. Linda made was a really strong point is does our interpretation and application of this, well, number one, for, for me, number one is, is it contextually sound? Are we being honest with how we're interpreting this? And are we making a full or taking the full weight of scripture into account whenever we apply it? And then secondly, is our interpretation of this doing harm to the church? And I think that that's an important point, but I also kind of, uh, I'm kind of hesitant to fully accept that point because there are some that would say, well, you know, the gospel of Jesus being the only way to heaven is going to be off putting to some people. Does that mean that we don't need to preach that Jesus is the only way because it can hurt some feelings or cause harm to the church? Well, no, not at all. But in terms of something that is not fundamentally inherent to the gospel itself, like a woman's role to be able to preach and teach, that's a completely different story. In this, you have a specific admonition given by Paul. You have a specific admonition given to the church in Corinth and to the young preacher Timothy to deal with a specific situation. And that's really what this boils down to. Is this a localized, specific event or specific statement meant to address a specific event or series of events? Or is this something that has global application? And if it has global application, well, then there should be evidence that this is intended to function as a global application. And to me, it's just as simple as this. The evidence that these instructions and admonitions are intended to be global and universal in scope, it ain't there. The evidence just isn't there. And when we parse the evidence, we do a close, careful reading of scripture. The opposite seems to rise to the top. These are specific events dealing with specific people in specific times and specific situations. And the Apostle Paul is addressing a very limited subset of women. Did Paul tell women to be silent? He absolutely did. There's no doubt that he said that. But which women and in which contexts? Because you can't take the whole body of Scripture and make this universally apply. Because if you do then there are a lot of unintended consequences that go with that if we're going to be consistent. Yes, sir. And with that, man, with that, we are back to our old days of (laughs) hours, my man. Yeah, hey, buddy. you know, I, I like it and I'm glad other people like it. We um I had listened to some folks. Some of them were my friends and uh found out later that you know, they would prefer a five minute podcast and that's just not what we're about. Um, there's a lot of uh, microwavable bit pieces out there, little bite sized pieces that uh, nothing wrong with that, that people can enjoy. But um, our goal is to to not go that route. We want to have in-depth study. We want people to hear that study. We want them to be a part of that study to see how we do it, to experience that they're not a to, to, to know that they're not alone, to experience it with us. And I want to just end with this because I will say that I do think by and large, the mainstream complementarian view is not only unbiblical, but I believe it's dangerous. Yeah. 
And I do not put Wes in that category. I do think Wes is uh, teaching what I would call a soft complementarian position. Um, from my understanding, when it boils down, when it, you know, when you boil it down, Wes is pretty much good with everything except a woman preaching and praying in the worship assembly. And while I don't agree with that, um, the way that he talks about mutual submission and things of that nature, those are the things that that are, in my opinion, most important. At the end of the day, um, once again, I, I if, if someone feels that it's wrong for a woman to lead, especially if a woman feels that way, by all means, I don't think she should be doing that. But I'm thankful that there are more congregations now who are allowing women to be in leadership positions, who are allowing women to teach, um, because I do think that I want to be careful not to downplay all of the damage that has been done, and I, I don't ever want any woman to feel like, oh, okay, well, it's no big deal because I think this is a big deal. I think that this this is an important topic. And and I do, as I said before, think that if if people take a mainstream complementarian position, it is dangerous. It leads women to feel like they're not equal as much as we want to claim it in the actions. Uh, you know, we'll tell a woman that they can be a CEO of businesses. They can write books. They can talk all day on Facebook. They can go to the moon. They can be educators and doctors. But you can't pass communion trays um, but, on Sunday morning. Exactly. But you can't pray to God in front of, you know, a handful of folks. Uh, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, at least to me, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't. And so I'm glad that there are more congregations that are being more open. Um, at the same time, I don't want to go on a crusade and say, if your congregation doesn't allow women to lead, then you don't love women and you're oppressed. I, I, I want to be careful <laughs> not to go down that route, too. I do think there are congregations who certainly fit that category. But uh, as C.S. Lewis says, we have to be we have to be careful of uh, chronological snobbery, is how he calls it. And as we grow, yeah. it's temptingly, and I, you know, I've talked a lot a lot about this. As we change our positions, and I'm even I'm even careful with the word grow because that implies if you're not where I'm at, you're not growing. And so I'm even careful with how I use that that term that those terms and that terminology as I change. Personally, as I have new developments in my own faith and understanding, it's easy sometimes to look back and go, wow, can you believe all those primitives who still think that women can't preach? I never want to get to that point because uh, we're we're constantly growing and we're constantly learning new ideas. And we've got to 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 listen to one another. We've got to treat one another with respect. And so I'm I'm so thankful you know, we've 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 talked about Wes. We've talked about Linda on the show, and I appreciate both of them coming on. I appreciate both of their attitudes. I believe if you believe what Wes believes or what Linda believes, uh, and that's why we had Wes on this program. I believe Wes is very Christocentric in his understanding and, and how he views women, how he treats women. I don't know anyone who uh, respects women uh, as, as much as Wes or equally as much as Wes. Wes has a, has a high regard. He's not your typical, what I think mainstream complementarian view is that women are lower and women just need to be in the kitchen, barefoot in the kitchen and have babies and, and, you know, have sex when we want it and just do what they, they, you know, whatever we tell you to do, you got to do it. I, Wes combats that. And I appreciate him combating that. I personally don't think he's come far enough in that. And he might later, he may never, I may end up changing. Who knows? Well, he he thinks you've gone too far, but that's okay. We love each other anyway. And we, we regard one another as brethren and fellow laborers. And, And so we're trying to get away from this us versus them mentality. 
And uh, this kind of, as I, as like I said, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, that when we change our position or looking back even, you know, um, in certain periods of time, even within our own lives, well, how come people aren't where I'm at? Well, we're all growing. And the bottom line, though, that I, the message I want to put out there is that women, uh, you're loved by God, you're equal, you're, you're co-heirs. It's not just uh, men, it's women. It's not just brothers, it's brothers and sisters, which that's a strong point that I thought that uh, Linda pointed out, that that word there that's often just translated as brothers or brethren is actually brothers and sisters, which rarely gets translated that way. But uh, yeah, I think it's just, uh, I, I want women to know how much they're loved, they're cared, uh, that that I, I wish and hope that the church will begin to utilize women more uh, within truly the Lord's army, <laughs> for lack of better words, to, because we've been we've basically been cutting off half of half of the body of Christ and saying that well we're just doing what the Bible says and so I think we need to bring back the body of Christ and start to to work actually in full do function. what the Bible says yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, work in full function absolutely well man this is a good conversation it's nice to be back to that old school long form I mean if the most popular podcast in the world by far that has literally hundreds of millions of listeners every week can have episodes that are three and a half and four hours long. We can do one that's a couple of hours. So if you guys have listened this long, thank you so much. We appreciate you. We appreciate all of you. We love you all dearly. We appreciate the growth that this podcast has seen. We crossed the threshold of 20,000 downloads not too long ago. So we're definitely getting the word out. We want to grow more though. So please share this podcast with your friends, share it with your neighbors, share it with your coworkers, share it with people that you believe would benefit from it. If you have questions, you have comments, you agree with us, you disagree with us, whatever the case may be, drop us a line. We have our email listed in the show notes below. If you would like to be up to date on when the latest episodes drop and when new things are going to be happening, Kevin has an email list that he has established. If you would like to join that list and be a part of that list, there's a link in the show notes below as well. Thank you all so much. We appreciate all of you. We love you. Have a wonderful night.